BBC Sounds. Music, radio, podcasts. <sighs> you ready, Mark? I am ready. Do you have anything else to type? No, I'm just, I'm just making notes for things that I'm going to say that will sound spontaneous in the show. <laughs> Excellent. I'm writing... It's funny you should say that, Simon, because it reminds me of the time... Somebody... I, I got a, a taxi, and nowadays, I, if, you, if I get into a taxi, you say, wherever it is, and they go, know the voice, love the podcast... And then they, and then it's, you know, do you and him actually get on? Do you write all that stuff out in advance? Do you actually watch all those films is the most common one. But the, do you write that stuff out in advance? And I just think it's, I, I, I love the idea that there is a sensation of listening to this that we might have actually planned it. Yeah. I mean, I know we have a whole production team working all the week round. They, they make it sound professional, <laughs> but it's just us that kind of make it into a complete shambles. An omni-shambles. That is a good, that is a good word. Yeah, who came up with... Who came up with Omni Shambles? Wasn't it? Yeah, it was the thing. Was it the thick of it? The thick of it. It was our friend Armando. It's one of the very few things that was made up in the thick of it that you can actually say on the radio. Apart from you having very big hands. Very, very big hands, which I'm still yeah living with. I've got a weird thing. I don't know what's happened to my finger. So Look, another medical. Well, it's become mutate. Isn't that weird? I've, I'm starting to develop like a witchy finger. You got the got, pox. I don't think it's the pox. I think the pox went out with with some. But describe your finger. Okay, well, basically, on the and this will be exciting because whenever I do this, it's exciting. You know, um, diagnose Mark on the radio. Well, you know that there's loads of consultants who are just waiting. Okay, poised so, over their keyboards. Okay, so in that case, here we go because it's, it's useful service. Okay, so on my is that my index finger? Yeah, yeah, fine. On my index finger, on the, the you know you have two joints on the finger. On the top joint, there are two knobbly like nodules. And then halfway down on the side, there is another hard knobbly nodule. I looked it up, and the things that it came up as... What, did right, you look up knobbly nodule? Yeah, yeah. I was literally Googling, I've got knobbly, knobbly nodules. Yeah, and that's and as you were saying, like, fine, there's... Anyway, so I did it, and the first thing that came up was gout, but I'm told that the, what I, that's not gout. And the second thing I came up with was arthritis, and I'm told that in my little finger is arthritis, but that's not arthritis. It's, yeah. I don't know what it is, but it's, I've had it now for about six months, and I've you know I've shown it to people, and they go, yeah, it's nothing. Have you shown it to a GP? Okay, I've shown it to my sister. Is she a GP? She's a trained medic. Is yeah. she okay? Let me just speak now on behalf of the nation. No, just kind of like the responsible thing. Go and see your GP, Mark. And my GP's busy. They've got things to do. Don't look, but don't look things up on the internet because it's always worse. No, I know, I know. That's and so I did, and it, and it basically I looked up on the internet, and it said like you've got five minutes to live. So then I asked okay. my sister, and she said, "I've oh, stopped making a fuss. It's nothing. You've just got a knobbly finger." Because I because I've just seen the favourite. I've just seen the favourite with the. Oh yeah, 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 and she has which, gout. Which, Queen which, Anne has gout in that, so I got gout. I'm thinking about gout. Yeah. Also, Mary Queen of Scots. Are uh, you Mary? <laughs> it's, it, it, well, it's not really like that. But we wasn't. But Queen Elizabeth. Yeah. yeah smallpox. Okay. So I'm thinking of you've got a combination then of, of royal diseases of smallpox and gout, which have combined it's to give you. Weird, because this one, it, it, the one on the side, is really solid. Can you still flap your hands if you need to? Yeah. Okay, that's good. I'm sure it's maybe base. Bass player related. It's very, very peculiar. Maybe at bbc.co.uk if you'd like to get Diagnose involved. Mark. <laughs> Neil in Epsom. <clears throat> uh, long-term listener, first-time email. And your discussions on last week's podcast, just keeping the medical theme, about cysto- uh, cystoscopies, flexible or rigid. Yeah, so we're staying with the medical theme, and yeah. I didn't know that was what you were going to go into. I've had a rigid cystoscopy before, 
Anne had a gastroscopy on Monday morning. Ooh. I was quite excited by this and bragged to the bewildered doctor about how the gastroscopy meant that I had now completed a lifetime full house of oscopies, having had <laughs> flexible and rigid cystoscopy, a colonoscopy, a bronchoscopy, and now the gastroscopy. Like the alien abductees, I have definitely been sufficiently probed. I would just like you to know. That's very good. Unfortunately, my excitement was lost on the bewildered doctor, who also missed my joke about saying hello to Jason Isaacs. But nonetheless... Hang on, uh, hang on, hang on. How did I miss the joke? No, no, no. It was the bewildered oh, doctor. Oh, the doctor. Oh, I'm You're so not sorry. the bewildered so doctor. Sorry. Oh, you are, actually. You manifestly are. No, no, the, the next bewildered doctor. doctor. I thought he meant me. Just as a reference. <laughs> Just he's literally talking about going to the doctors, and then he says the doctor and I, because in the end, I think everything is about me. If it was bewildered professor, that would obviously <laughs> that's fine. Yeah. Anyway, <laughs> the bewildered doctor I was speaking to, who was giving me the oscopies, also missed my joke about saying hello to Jason Isaacs. But nonetheless, I have received superb care during my current bout of ill health, which, after six weeks, finally has a rather verbose diagnosis, and this is it. Go on. Sudden onset viral gastroenteritis, which caused a mild cardiac event Ooh. and two duodenal ulcers. I just say the phrase mild cardiac event sounds like talking round something. The sudden onset part meant that it came out of nowhere whilst leading a school trip to see one of the NFL games at Wembley. <laughs> uh, your wittering and the care of my lovely wife have helped keep going over this period, uh, so please keep up, keep up the good work. Anyway, uh, th uh, that's the full house of oscopies. It's a full house that you no one else is going to You're a scientist. Yeah, I mean, that's so so well done, Neil. You ought to get, like, a special badge. If you, if you run... <laughs> a badge which says fully probed. Fully probed, exactly. If you run all the big marathons, you get a special medal. Mm. So there should be, like, a... If you've had the flexible and rigid, the colon, the bronchoscopy and the gastroscopy, you should get give it like a certificate or a what you can do right is if you get all the results bound together okay mm -hmm. if you ever get abducted by space aliens you can just hand it the literature you say sorry save your probe there you go. <laughs> unless they've unless the aliens have thought of another probe i'm sure there are others which we don't need to have you ever seen to. that film communion which is based on the book communion no which is which is that it's the classic aliens probed me movie you know, it's what's it? Was it called Whitley Stryber? Was the the author? I don't know. You know when I said I didn't see it. No, no, but I you might, but no, but Communion was a really big deal. Well, the Communion, the movie was a bit of a, a bit of a sort of footnote to Communion. The story because wasn't Communion? I think wasn't there. There's some sense that this has actually happened. I, I mean, of course, because it didn't happen. It's all nonsense. But you know, uh, well, anyway, there, there is a, there, yes, because the re the, the reason that I remember that is because one of the people who is in Communion is then later on in a John Sayles film in which she has to talk about the worst acting job she ever had. And she said, you might you might have to just bleep this, but it, I'll, I'll tell you anyway. Sophie's looking up, she's got something to do yeah, now. Yeah, OK. So it's a, it's, it's, a, it's a really, really lovely John Sayles film. And it's a, a, an actress who's in communion and in the John Sayles film, sort of fictionally, but she's, she starts having to tell this story about the worst acting role she ever had. And she said, I just remember spending the whole afternoon on a set saying saying, I didn't ask for the anal probe. <laughs> Let me just see. Is that going to make it in? It's stayed in. <laughs> okay, good. It could be the name of her memoir. It's just such a great scene. It's such a brilliant scene. She just does spend the whole afternoon. Right, well, while we're on that, on that medical thing, <clears throat> this might trouble you if you're squeamish, but anyway, this is from Anne James. Thank you, Anne. The subject of this email is Wittertainment-Related Emergency Care which is a whole new area in the hospital, yeah. and wittertainment-related aftercare, 
which is Wreck and Rack, in case you... Very good. Dear, still the best show on radio. I'm well overdue to inform you about an episode of Wittertainment-related emergency care, or Wreck, which occurred in March. Simon recently suggested, and not for the first time, that Wittertainment should be available on prescription. Well, I think it should be installed in ambulances, too. Okay. I was away with a group of Woodcraft folk. Oh, really? A peace-loving group, very keen to spend time in nature. Yeah. I therefore found myself a committed Londoner in a field in Kent. The nature turned out to be dark, wet and slippery, unlike, <laughs> unlike a decent London pavement, threw me onto the grass, causing three quite uncalled for fractures to my left leg oh, no. and ankle. Fortunately, knowing That's that I horrible. would be denied the civilising effect of my sofa and access to the internet, I'd paused on the way to the camp to download my weekly fix of the BBC's flagship film programme. And a good job it was too. Trees and badgers notwithstanding, I was still in the southeast and had to wait three and a half hours for an ambulance with my foot not entirely pointing in the right direction. Oh. I don't know what I would have done without Ava DuVernay and your good selves to distract me from my pain. After all, stiff upper lip and all that, people were clearly struggling to find the appropriate light conversation to fit my situation. <laughs> and after I'd plugged myself in, I didn't have to try and keep up with them. I won't even tell you about the bit where they had to take me to the loo. Oh, that sounds a particular yes, kind of grim. Really does. When the nice lady finally arrived with the morphine, I was greatly, <laughs> I was greatly relieved. Unfortunately, I soon learned that ambulances are made for nice, well-lit roads, not dirt tracks hemmed in by trees. Yeah. And my journey to the nearest hospital was quite a lot bumpier than was absolutely ideal under the circumstances, which included a broken bone pressing against my skin from the inside. It wasn't too long before we reached the hospital and you two kept me company again during the wait for an x-ray, then for a bed, then for a sleep. I'd have felt much lonelier and lost without your help during that painful night, so my heartfelt thanks for the comfort of your, of your familiar voices. I started the shows from the beginning again when that stupid plastic boot wouldn't let me sleep. This is Wittertainment-related aftercare, the rack. And they were a godsend. Apart from helping me through the night, the reviews helped me select my daytime viewing. I must have watched hundreds of films while confined to the sofa. I listened to them during the day too, and my husband got used to the sound of your voices coming from my bosom. A useful place to stash your phone if you use crutches, <laughs> and indeed have a bosom. And need to make sure that people are, now in capital letters, doing things properly around the house. I only got to the pictures once whilst I was still wearing the cast, Black Klansman, which is brilliant, because as it turns out, crutches make it difficult to nip out and use the facilities without getting tangled up in double doors. But I'm almost back to normal and very much looking forward to seeing Mary Poppins returns later this month. Thank you for making me feel better. Tickety-tonk, limpingly, uh, Anne James. Thank you, Anne. What a great email. Who's looking for, it is a great email, isn't it? All the way through and a speedy recovery. And she's looking forward to seeing Mary Poppins returns. And can I tell you very I, before you do? No, that, you get. You're on, I just want to tell you that I have seen. Mary yeah, I know, I know, I know, I know, I know. All the production team has seen. It's Mary only Poppins me who hasn't. It's only you. Yeah, and all, all I want. Are you embargoed? I am fully embargoed. But I did see a tweet that you put up which suggested that it hadn't. All that, the tweet said Mary Poppins can solve Brexit, which I thought was not breaking any embargo, and it wasn't being politically difficult in any way, and therefore it struck a fine... I oh, know, I know what you... So, so, OK, because you know how worried I've been about this. Yes, yeah, shall I give you a... Give me a... Give me a yeah, just give me a little... A little through, through the medium of modern dance. Yes, and because we're not... We're not this isn't being live-streamed. No one can tell other than me. So I can do you a very hearty... And obviously you can't comment because that would break the embargo. When are you seeing it? I'm seeing it Monday. Can I very quickly tell you my um, broken bone story? 
Is it better than Anne's? No, then I think nothing's better than that. But very quickly, look, you know, you know that something else wrong with you. Yeah, you see that that huge scar there, right? That, that ended up so that there, right? Okay, yeah. How I did that. So I did. Okay, we, we need to have a medical consultant. I'll be quick in the in in the in the studio. Everyone. When I was a kid, right, I got sent on a holiday, <clears throat> which was a pony trekking holiday in Wales. It was a way of your parents getting rid of you for a week. They send you off on a pony trekking thing, right? And uh, and I was on a pony. And I was up the side of some hill, uh, uh, you know, Breckenbeek, anyway, somewhere. And the something happened and I fell off. And I fell quite badly and I fell off down a, a, a slope, down a bit of a ravine. And I put my hand out to, to break my fall and I broke my arm, broke both the bones completely in half, right? And I was about 11 or 12, maybe 12, okay? And so it was very painful and ah, very, very terrible. Oh, really? And, but we were up the side of a mountain. So... They had to get me down and they called an ambulance. Um, this is in the days before mobile phones. So somebody had to go off and go and do this. This is way back in the 70s. So we get to the, to the to, a Jeep comes up as far as it can come because we're up the side of a, you know, a hill, mountain. And I get into the Jeep and they put me in the Jeep. They put my arm in a sling and they say, you've got to put a seatbelt on. I said, I can't put a seatbelt on because my arm is there and it's all sort of, you know, really painful. So they say, OK, we'll drive you down. And they drive me down. Boom, 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 boom. This is the thing. Bouncy, bouncy, bouncy. Then we got onto the road, which is smooth, and they hit the gas, and we have a head-on collision with the ambulance coming the other way. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I bounce off the... This is, good. Off, this is a good story. This is true. I bounce off the windscreen because I'm not wearing a seatbelt, and I gash my head open. So when I get to the hospital, I'm, I have two separate injuries, one of them falling off a horse and the other from running into an ambulance. Can we, can we talk about our scars then? Yeah, go on. I jumped down some stairs and fell through a window, and I've got a cut, th- a cut through on the top of my nose. So what did you do? You jumped down jumped some stairs? Jumped down some stairs. I said, look at me. Hey, <laughs> oh, falling through a window. <laughs> so I had we, an abs- uh, I've got a scar on my left nipple right, okay, okay. caused no, no, by no. an abscess. You've got a scar on your left, left nipple caused by an abscess? Yes, big, huge abscess had to be large. Okay, just, just to the jumping down the stairs. Oh, yeah. This happened when? When I was five, I think. And so, but how did you? So you jumped down the stairs and then continued to move. Lost and went, my balance. You're right. Fell through the window. Went through the window. Yeah. It was literally through the window. Yeah, ground floor window. Yeah, but you went through the the glass through of the, the window. window. I've because I've got the here. Look, this one. Where is it now? There. I had a carbuncle on my knee. No, that's not as interesting. Okay. There. Okay. That you see this there, like literally starts there all the way around there. Yeah. Yeah. Fine. Phone rang. Ran downstairs. Forgot that small child had a train set out. Ran towards it, tripped on the train set, put my hand out to steady myself, you know, against the wall, missed the wall, straight through the window. And literally that whole thing. <coughs> and then when I got to the hospital, they said, when, how long ago was your house? But I said, a very long time ago. They said, you haven't got safety glass in your house, have you? And I said, no. They said, you need to get safety glass in your house. And I said, why? And they said, because you'll be amazed at how many very bad injuries happen from people having old-fashioned glass. You're living in The Simpsons, basically. And... Can I say, I've got a scar here because I was bitten by a wolf. This is like Jaws, isn't it? It is. But your scars are bigger than mine, so I'm happy to accept that. Before we we run out of time... Black eyes, doll's eyes. um, uh, Richard Hosker, I wish to correct your... And lots of people have done this. I wish to correct your ornithological mistake on last week's show. Ornithological birds, yes. The three-note call that Simon incorrectly suggested was the coo of a wood pigeon, yeah. is in fact the sound of a collared dove. The oh. two can be easily distinguished by the number of notes in their call. Da, 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 da. Here we go. A wood pigeon has five, a collared dove has three. Here we go. So the collared dove, first of all. No, that's the first bit. Lots of other birds in there. Uh, oh. There it is. There's a collared dove. Okay. Yeah. And this is the wood pigeon. 
They're both intensely annoying. They're very similar, but that's the one I meant. It's the second one that I was doing. That's the wood pigeon. But the coloured dove sound as though it was doing something fairly similar. Sorry, play the first one again. Can we have the coloured dove? That's the wood pigeon. Oh, I see. Okay, so the coloured dove has got five notes. Coloured dove has three, according to Richard, and but although. See, the coloured dove, I think, sounded as though it had five as well. Yeah. But it was I, just slightly... I think it was the, definitely, definitely a wood pigeon, which I was going, uh, uh, uh. The wood pigeon uh, is uh, more uh, annoying than one, the coloured dove. One, two, three, four, five. Anyway, says Richard, back to geologist cave in the church. Thanks very much, Richard, and uh, on with the show. Where do you stand on custard there? Where do I stand yeah, on Nicky custard? Rachel were just discussing whether they're hardline custarders or not. Would you go? Do you need custard at Christmas? The, 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 I, one of the films that we're going to be reviewing today has got a long comedy sequence in it about we're going for cold custard. Right? Would you go? Do you want the skin or not? Oh no, I don't. I'm, no, do you want the skin on custard? No. Why not? Well, because it's meant to be fluid. It's not meant to be hard. It's not, Something, not okay. meant to have a crust. Just, just, <laughs> just, just uh, linking uh, effortless, effortlessly from, uh, from breakfast. Um, a little baby section of the show, first of all. Uh, Jen in St Albans, I was hoping you could give a big wass-up to all the parents out there who, like myself, listen to your show uh, and then the podcast normally whilst on nighttime feeding duties. Child 2 arrived 10 weeks ago and I found the loneliness and monotony of the 3am feeds much easier to bear as a result of tuning into your big bad selves. If only I'd known about your show seven years ago when Child 1 arrived, I'm sure he'd have turned out better. As it is, he always whinges when you're being played in this house, as he's never forgiven Mark for his less than glowing review of the Emoji movie. I'm very sorry. I promise to bring up Child 2 better. Very sorry. I'm also finding the Witcoin button on the Witter app strangely addictive, but I guess that's what sustained sleep deprivation can do for you. <laughs> Tickety Tonk says Jane and down with mastitis. So there you go. Uh, quite enough detail, I think. Uh, Libby is on here. Dear Rigid and Flexible. What would you go for then? Which one do you want to be? I'm going to be flexible. I've just gotten back from a new biz. Where did Gotten? Gotten is now a very acceptable alternative to Got, I find. I know. I, 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 not only do I notice it, I notice that I, I've written it down in things. Okay. And then, I'm, then I've gone back and read them. and gone, Slippery I've, slope. I've written huh? Got, I know. Slippery slope. Yeah. Libby says, just got back from a new biz screening of Creed 2, which I went to with my eight-week-old daughter, Ruth, and I'd like to add another hill on which to die. The film was passable, understandably predictable, with some OK performances, great montages. However, there was a scene where a lady who had very recently given birth was wearing a crop top, showing a totally flat, flawless stomach. Having given birth quite recently, says Libby, I can testify to the fact that this isn't really very realistic. <laughs> the fight scenes look pretty realistic, as someone who's kickboxed before. Being a mum, I know from experience that giving birth... Feels like having gone a few rounds with Mike Tyson. It's a shame that the elements around birth weren't more true to life. For your pregnant listeners who see the film, don't expect to go back to how you were immediately. It took nine months to grow your ABBA-loving baby, and it'll take a while to recover. I don't necessarily want to die on this hill, but as I've not slept for eight weeks, can I have a quick nap on it? Just for a couple of hours. <laughs> anyway, and can you wish my husband Adam a happy birthday as a new dad? He could do with a bit of a... Bit of a kip. I'd just like to say that when the good lady Professor Her indoors had uh, had had our babies, I was the one that had to lose the weight afterwards. But I'm, I haven't lost it yet. I've, somehow I put on. Oh look! But there's baby Ruth. In fact, that's the child who's already seen Creed Two. Oh, we've all gone all sentimental here because it's the time of year. Um, Did you put on weight as a father? No. Didn't you? Why would I put on weight as a father? 
But I, I don't, it happened to me. I literally, I, I just, you know, I started just ballooning. Yeah, exactly. Comfort food. Exactly. I mean, I, I yeah. Philip Yellen in Hong Kong. Um, yeah. So this is this is an interesting thing. I don't know what you're going to think about this, Mark. I think we have an opportunity for some good old-fashioned Rethian public service broadcasting. Uh, in light of Tom Cruise suggesting we all need to change our TV settings to turn off video smoothing and interpolation or potentially ruin the carefully created vision of the director, I was wondering if we could get the definitive advice on this from the good doctor uh, to find out whether this is necessary or not. As potentially millions of Wittertainees could be viewing masterpieces in a substandard way, I think an urgent diktat is necessary to educate members of the church. Can you explain what the problem is here? That okay, well, the thing that at? Tom Cruise and Chris McQuarrie have been talking about is um, this uh, motion smoothing thing, which, which what they have said is that when you, if you watch a film on high-definition television, it's often weird because it looks like it's 48 frames. It, it actually makes it look like it's somehow... It's the soap opera effect. It looks like, like behind-the-scenes video. It looks like what we were all complaining was the case with uh, you know, the 48 frames that Peter Jackson was using. And I've always, when I, with television, I put them onto the cinema mode because it slightly softens the picture, and I think it also does something to the colour. I've never fully understood what it, what it is. But in terms of this, um, this motion, uh, motion smoothing... Apparently, the way it works is that it creates an interpolative frame between frames. A what? An interpolative frame between. You remember when? Remember when we were talking about they shall not grow old? Yes. We're talking about taking frames and constructing a frame in between them. Well, the television somehow seems to do a version of this, which is great if you're watching sport, but does something completely artificial to. To, to a film if you're watching on television, which would go a long way to explaining, I suppose, why it is that when you watch... Certainly when you watch films on HD TVs, they often look really, really weird. And I, I automatically go into the settings and try and make them look as much like a movie as possible. Otherwise, I just find it really off-putting. So is Tom Cruise right? I think he is right. Okay. Um, but this particular thing about turning off this function is actually not something that I have consciously done. I've just always gone into cinema mode, which has sort of softened it slightly. And he says that apparently it's very complicated. Chris McQuarrie says that if you tr most HDTVs come with this feature already on, turning it off requires navigating a set of menus with interpolation, often referred to by another brand name. So it is a complicated okay. thing to do. Right. So what we thought we'd do is we get producer Simon to do one of his masterclasses. Because oh, he's just, technical. Just to help us out. So Producer Simon, welcome again, by the way. Hi, thanks. Uh, how do you turn off video smoothing? You just turn off video smoothing. OK, thanks very much indeed. Uh, 12 minutes past 12 o'clock. Uh, on a similar vein... 2 o'clock. <laughs> what? You said 12 minutes past 12 o'clock. Oh, OK. So there's a producer constantly working. Just, he's it's always on. Correcting he's you, always on. Correcting you on air. That's fair enough. Uh, back in your box. Megan Black. Back in goal, goalie. Dear Nigel and Keith, I hope both of your bad selves are well. I'm writing to weigh in on the debate about watching films at double speed. Whilst I would never watch a Which film... Which is different to watching a film with interpolated frames. I actually wanted to see it double speed. It does have its advantages when watching films you don't want to watch. Case in point. Last year at university, I took a European film module, which was very interesting, but sometimes a little heavy. With limited time to write essays, sometimes there was no choice but to speed watch some of the more, well tedious films. I discovered during this process that it can also make said tedious films pretty entertaining. If you've never seen Alexander Nevsky at double speed, I suggest you do so immediately. <laughs> oh, that's terrible. Cinematic joke there, understood by very few. Okay. So, I can attest that, although it's not the best way to watch a film, it does have its upsides. 
tinkety-tonk and all that jazz. Thank you, Megan. I suppose there are occasions. Just before we do the box office top ten, Vito says, Simon and Mark, I heard you talking about cool names on your last programme. Simon asked if Sonny is a cool name. Well, my best friend is called Sonny, and I think it's cool. My name is Vito. Do you think that's a cool name? I am. Well, eight, Vito is cool. I am eight years old. My mum told me that you're about your show, and I like it. I've been listening to it for six months. My favourite thing about the show is when you review a film, and I get a better idea of how good it is, which is very nice, Vito. Which yeah, is see, why we're here. Yeah, and he's why he's a smart listener. And Vito is, of course, an incredible. Vito is cool a name. very, very cool name. And I uh, and I think I might rename myself Vito. I'm going to give myself that as a nickname or middle name, or just have another child and call that child Vito. That might be easier. So, I don't know where that was going. No, I don't know where it was going. Uh, so, before the box office top ten, I just want to mention um, the Mowgli film. Oh yeah, which I liked, Legend of the Jungle. Yes, Legend we didn't review it here, but um, did we review it? No, we did review it. We did. I did it in, in Cream of the Streams. Yes, we did. I beg your pardon. Nick, I, I liked it. Dear Sheer Khan and Sheer Khan, this is Nick Ord. Ba boom. Uh, I mean, he he's going to disagree with you and me about this. Yeah. We didn't win Cream of the Streams. We did it in the program because this. Did have a th- sorry, sorry. I'm... This film is a real shame. Okay. According to Nick. Because? After Andy Serkis's pioneering motion capture work on Gollum, Kong and the Apes franchise, which quite literally and perhaps arguably even single-handedly changed how animated movies are made and the genre's characters perceived forever, this passion project arrives with little fanfare and despite the long gestation, I couldn't shake the feeling unfinished. Given the success of the Disney live-action Jungle Book reboot and subsequent fair... Uh, Mowgli Legend of the Jungle feels like Circus has turned up underdressed and late to a Disney-themed fancy dress party thrown by Disney at Disneyland. The magic is missing, the stellar cast often wasted. My Indian friends and associates, whilst I lived in that country, were on occasion sensitive to stereotyping and what they deemed cultural appropriation, to the extent of being very sniffy and surprisingly suspicious of gems like Slumdog Millionaire and Best Exotic Marigold Hotel. I feel Mowgli is far less subtle about such references than either of those films. And as such, it put me on guard from the outset. I mean, I, I really I, enjoyed mm, it. I just, yes, I mean, I, I've, I've known about it for such a long time because the project's had a very, very long gestation. And, of course, there was the, you know, the whole thing about the John Favreau version coming out, which, which was an unfortunate piece of timing. But I actually liked Mowgli a lot more than I thought I was going to. I thought the story worked. I thought that it had teeth and it had bite. And it's a very, very different film to the Disney. I've had a couple of people saying that they didn't think that the, the motion capture stuff was was top notch. But I thought it was. I thought it worked really well. I loved the voice cast. And I think the Nitton Sawney score was just terrific. I mean, I think it was really terrific and really kind of bound together the disparate elements of the story. And I, yeah, no, I was, I was really pleasantly surprised by how, how well it came together. I mean, I, I'm a, I, I had gone in with some scepticism because the project had been such a long time, you know, uh, gestating. And of course, um, uh, that you know that often means it's a troubled production, but I didn't think it looked that that, that way at all. Didn't you think the, the 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 young boy was brilliant? I did. I think he was. Uh, I thought he was terrific. And it's on Netflix, so everyone can see that if you have that particular streaming uh, service, and it'll be there for you know there forever. So there are advantages yeah. in it being there. But yeah. I, I thought it was more sensitive. But obviously, uh, if you live in India, maybe you have a different perspective on that. But I thought it was 
probably more true to the original story that they that they were trying to tell. I I, I felt the same way. Um, be interesting to know if uh, if others feel differently. But I mean, yeah, if you've if you've seen uh, Mowgli, let let us know because I did like it. Box office top ten at seventeen. Three identical strangers. I'll do some emails then. You yeah, your sure. Thing. I, Catherine Mallin, I have not stopped thinking about three identical strangers since I saw it. Truly extraordinary and astonishing tale brought to life through wonderful storytelling, in particular by the brothers of the film's title. Their hugely expressive faces convey so clearly every one of the emotions they experience from their remarkable discovery uh, of each other onwards. Uh, Charlie in London just emerged from three identical strangers, not a story I was familiar with, so felt the full impact of every twist. By turns, touching, shocking, thought-provoking and surprisingly funny, as good as anything I've seen this year, including American Animals, would make an exhausting, extraordinary double bill. Uh, Yes, that's it. I mean, I thought it was great. I, I... Obviously, the less you know about the story going in, the better, because the, the story is definitely constructed with reference to sort of genre filmmaking, and it's put together like a thriller. It's put together like a like a mystery story. Um, but even if you do know the story, even if you have read read about it in in the press, it's it's a. I think it's a really well told story. I think the filmmaking itself is great, and and actually the the narrative itself is so bizarre. That in the first twenty minutes, it does everything that you think the title is talking about. Oh well, you know, there's these these three identical these identical triplets, and they don't know each other, and then they find each other. And then you think, I'm twenty minutes in. Where's the film going to go from here? And then it becomes this whole other really strange, semi-conspiratorial story. I thought it was just great. And the the comparison I would make is with something like Searching for Sugar Man, in which it's all in the way the story is told. Uh, a Star is Born, is it 10? You're not missing over disobedience? Uh, uh, just for time purposes? Okay, but just for disobedience, I think, is worth seeing. I mean, I, I, think, 12. I think Rachel Weisz is really terrific in that, and I think it takes um, that central story about, you know, two people who were intimate when they were young and they've been thrown apart because they're in a community which doesn't accept that intimacy, and now she, uh, Rachel Weisz's character comes back, and what does that do to that very insular community? I, I mean, I thought this was really good. I thought it was well directed by Sebastian Lelio, who, of course, made a fantastic woman. And great performances by Rachel Weiss and uh, Rachel McAdams. Uh, and Wilfred on our YouTube channel. Happy to see a fellow Chilean get the praise he deserves. Gloria and a fantastic woman, a remarkable. He is one of our best directors. He really, really right is now. a remarkable, uh, remarkable director. A Star is Born at 10. Loved it. And uh, it'd be interesting to see whether the bloom has come off the rose at all when it comes to you know, this award season that we're entering now. Because you remember when it first came out, everyone was saying, this is it, this is the film that's going to win Best Picture. And I, I, I just wonder what it's, I wonder how it's shaping up now. What's changed? Well, it's, some, there is a, award season is so mad, things peak too early sometimes. And I don't know, I mean, I may be completely wrong. I may be completely wrong, but I just have that kind of feeling about it. And I really liked it. Widows at Nine. Which I think is great. I think the performances are brilliant. I love the fact that, you know, what Steve McQueen has done is to take something which we've seen before as a television miniseries and make it into something which is wholly and absolutely a film, a work of cinema. And the performances are just really really great you can watch it as a heist thriller or an anti-heist thriller if you want to or you can watch it as a character study or you can watch it as something which is kind of dissecting the location and it's like all of Steve McQueen's films it's really really I I loved it Robin Hood is at number eight Jason from Ethan Minnesota Robin Hoodie uh, I manage a cinema in the United States right. and recently decided to screen the 77th retelling of Robin Hood 
uh, on TV or film, according to Wikipedia. Is that how many there have been? 77. Yeah. As part of an ongoing after-hours bad film event with some of the other employees here. And boy, oh boy, did this movie fit the bill. It is remarkably and impressively awful. <laughs> Each new scene is a different rip-off of a different movie. Every scene in this movie is laughably horrendous. This movie steals from Guy Ritchie and gives out gives us not much more. Outside of Happy Time Murders, this is one of the worst movies I've seen all year. But I have to admit, I loved every awful second of it. Me and my co-workers couldn't stop laughing, but none, but for none of the intended reasons. Somebody, it wasn't me, somebody said, steals from the Ritchie and leaves us the poorer. Very good. And Jason says, I'd like to echo your previous correspondence about moviegoers needing to be nicer to the cinema workers. Yes, yes, a billion times yes. Katie with a PhD... Uh, as probably one of the few people who enjoyed King Arthur, I won't call it a guilty pleasure in deference to Simon, but if ever a film deserves the title, it's that one. <laughs> uh, that's only a thing that if you like it, you like it and you shouldn't feel guilty about it. That's all. <laughs> the constant comparisons made me think I actually might enjoy it. So having suspended my disbelief, switched off my brain and stuck my tongue firmly in my cheek, I gave Robin Hood a shot. I was not disappointed. Yes, it's a bit ridiculous and very anachronistic, but I enjoyed the stylized cinematography, thought the action was good and enjoyed watching Ben Mendelsohn chomp his way through the scenery. It even passed the sixth laugh test, though I'm not sure it was supposed to. All in all, not a cinematic masterpiece, but a fun distraction on a wet Welsh evening. Yeah. Um, Well... I mean, I think it is rubbish. I think Ben Mendelsohn is the best thing about it, despite the fact that he is dressed as a Star Wars character. Um, and there, there's a there's a moment in it when you think, when I thought, this is interesting. They're trying to do these battle scenes as if they are modern day battle scenes, and you do kind of expect helicopters to appear. And you know, when they throw the rocks, it's like a missile strike. But the thing is that the novelty of that wears off quite quickly. And when you're watching a movie that makes you think this is second-rate Guy Ritchie, <laughs> if, what? you've lowered the bar quite a lot, haven't you? Uh, Robin Hood's number eight, Nativity Rocks, is at seven. I think it's the second best of the Nativity films. And as we know, I like the first Nativity. I have disliked them uh, as the sequels have gone on. But this is actually... I still have huge problems with it. I don't, I've, once was enough... But um, I think of all of them, it's the second best. Uh, Miles, on an email, just returned from a packed screening of Nativity Rocks with my children, yeah. uh, 10 and 8. Their ages, not their names, obviously, says Miles. Bluntly, <laughs> it's amateur gibberish with hastily drawn crude caricatures, yeah. a sub-panto level of plotting oh, yeah. and gobsmacking levels of stupid. So, naturally, I laughed all the way through and cried about four times. <laughs> the kids loved it too, probably. Yours already at the Christmas Baileys, Miles. <laughs> Good. That's a thought, isn't it, really? It's no. A, it's a little bit early, but... Do you, sorry, do you do that? The Christmas Baileys? I don't understand it. I don't understand that, and I don't understand eggnog. I don't understand eggnog, but a Christmas Baileys is very nice. You can actually add a little bit of whiskey just to make it a little bit more substantial. What to, 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 what is what is Baileys? What is... Whiskey, it's whiskey yeah, and Literally a master... Is that what it is? Yeah, basically. So you can beef up the whiskey if you fancy it. But it's very sweet. You know, it's the kind of thing that a lot of restaurants make a lot of money on because they can, you know, you, oh, I'll have one of those. Thanks very much. Oh, that'll be £65. Thank you very much indeed. Yeah, I just don't, I don't understand what it is. It's like one of those things. It's like a kumquat. I don't get what it's meant to be and therefore I find it difficult. Two point, is it 2.0? Uh, yes, and six? I haven't seen it. It wasn't press screen, but it's okay, gone well, straight yeah. in at number six. If anyone has a review, please let Shirley us know. Shirley Bond has. Good.
Topically, it revolves around the evil of mobile phones which suddenly take flight and form huge swarms attacking humans and causing mass destruction. Sounds great. All in glorious 3D. Slow to start, the final confrontation between humans, robots and phones show that the big Hollywood studios do not have a monopoly on blockbuster madness. Well acted and great fun, this film needs to be seen. That sounds actually really good fun. Thank you. And maybe the best day to see it was yesterday when some films had no data and therefore didn't work very well. Uh, so that's at six. Bohemian Rhapsody's at five. Yeah, really enjoying it. Still holding up. Uh, the Grinch is at four. Mm. I just thought we don't particularly need another version of this story and I didn't think it brought anything new to the table, but it it did what it did in an innocuous way. And as I said at the time, fairly undemanding younger audiences may well enjoy it whilst it's on, but it's hardly memorable. Um, Matt in Paraparaumu. Where's that? It's in New Zealand. Okay. What's it called? Paraparaumu. Okay. And it's written exactly as it sounds. Great. Um, Matt says, this week we took our 10-year-old autistic son to see The Grinch at the Reading Cinema in Wellington. Mm -hmm. He laughed all the way through Yellow is the New Black. That's the... Yeah, that's that's the the short, that's the Minion short film before. And happily sat through the first 10 minutes of The Grinch. That may not sound like a glowing endorsement, but recently it's a triumph to get past the trailers on a cinema visit. Sure. As our son loves the theatre, but hasn't yet made it through more than half a film. The audience was well behaved. The Minion short was fine by my standards and hilarious to my son. And the first 10 minutes of The Grinch raised many a smirk and even a chuckle or two. And that's what we—that's more than sure. what we got to see of Despicable Me Three. Well, it, I mean, I wonder whether you've had a go at the Minions movie because if you like Yellow Is the New Black, and I may be telling you something you know already, but um, uh, the Minions movie, particularly the first ten minutes of the Minions movie with the history of the Minions through the ages, is one of the funniest things I've seen in living memory. Uh, Grinch is at four. Fantastic Beasts: The Crimes of Grindelwald you know, is it, at number three. <laughs> I, I I do keep thinking about it because I keep thinking about that you know the, the the big set piece and I think you know I I would now like to see the next movie, but the I do think the structural problems are an issue. Uh, I think there are just huge sections of it in which it 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 is it is explainy plotty, you know one too many characters, one too many twists, one too many stories within stories, and it's it's peculiar because. J.K. Rowling is a consummate storyteller, and it it's it, so it's odd to see that get dropped. I mean, I still think there are things about it that I like, and certainly if you're um, uh, a Potter fan or a Wizarding World fan, you you know you won't want to miss it. But it it does feel like it's doing a lot of groundwork to set you up for the next one, and I that's always a kind of a bit of a okay. It's the one in the middle. It's the it it's it's the middle part of the Lord of the Rings in which they walk from here to there. Uh, Josh, who is 11 and eleven years and five days. I went to see Crimes of Grindelwald with reasonable expectations and right. came out amazed. I oh, okay. love the chemistry between Newt and Jacob and Ezra Miller is great as Credence, even though he is doing this to make the wait for The Flash seem shorter. Uh-huh. I am the biggest Potterhead in my school. We had a Fantastic Beast topic and I out-triviaed all of my class, even the teachers, wow. which helped me notice all the Easter eggs in the film. The second-to-last scene looked more like a fiery version of Lord of the Rings and the end was amazing. I'm not saying it's the best film uh, ever, but a great film for any Potter fan. Uh, Josh, thank you very much indeed. Creed 2 is at number two. You see, I really like this. Um, I thought, I mean, it's astonishing the way that the Creed franchise has basically reinvigorated the Rocky story. And I thought Creed itself was really exceptional. And there is that fight sequence in Creed, which is done as what looks to be a single shot. 
and it's really powerfully cinematic and sweeping. Now, there isn't anything in Creed 2 to match that, but what there is is that you've now invested in these characters and you you know you believe in their stories. I could have done with more of Tessa Thompson, I could have done with more of that, but I just thought as continuing those characters and continuing their story, it, it worked really well. And again, as I said, I've somebody never, never having watched a boxing match in my life. I know there was a very big boxing match over the weekend, wasn't there? Um, yes. Yeah, fine. Which I hadn't watched that either. I The fight sequences were really engaging and I, I understood what was going on and I found myself, you know, gripping the side of the chair and punching the air at the right moments. Nicholas Lindstrom says, Creed 2 is simply the most astonishing film I've experienced this year well, and possibly okay. for quite a few years. I knew or rather hoped that as I was seeing the fight within 30 minutes of the start, this was going to be a break from the typical narrative and one I was excited about. It's the best film about boxing, which isn't about boxing, that I've ever seen. I write this having just watched a film about a shark, which isn't, as you know, Mm -hmm. although actually it is. Mm -hmm. Its understanding of the male relationship and psyche is something I don't think I've seen in a film before. Perhaps Stand By Me is its closest equal. I'm 44, if that helps. That's an interesting comparison. Sylvester Stallone needs to be actively writing and making more films in a time when men's mental Mental health is at crisis point. This should be praised and watched by every man who has a father, no matter who that person is. I simply loved it. And Fraser McCallum, Creed 2 is a lot of fun, both a logical continuation of the first instalment and a thick slice of nostalgia. It lacks the emotional heft of the previous film, but does attempt to balance the cheesier elements with some real pathos. Stallone lost out on an Oscar last time to Mark Rylance, but some sterling work here means I wouldn't rule him out of a late comeback when award season arrives there's a moment in the climactic fight when a much loved music cue kicks in that all had all but had me out of my seat <laughs> if you're a fan of the series you'll love this installment creed 2 is at number 2 also also good to see dolph back as drago it's 2:36 movies till 4 o'clock uh, we're doing the box office top 10 number 1 in just a second and steve carell uh, is our guest talking about Welcome to Marwin, which is actually out on January the 1st. Yes. So we'll we'll talk to Steve no, so Carell in just a moment. I can't believe that 2018 has almost That's gone. That's it, it's gone. It's just so flown by. First movie of the new year will be Welcome to Marwin. How was Christmas Marwin. for you, Simon? Was it a good one? Yeah, it was good. The Christmas Baileys, wow, we had so much of that. Did you? you know, that was, yeah. Did you go wassailing? A wassailing? Yeah. Yeah, we always go a wassailing. Yeah. Uh, How was it? Well, no one wants us to no one. <laughs> ever again, you know. <laughs> So, uh, box office number one is obviously uh, is obviously Ralph, Ralph breaks, breaks the, the internet. internet. And uh, Stephen Garnett says, if Robin Hood was the worst film, in my opinion, of the year, Ralph breaks the internet may be the most disappointing. I've been very impressed with the recent crop of Disney movies, possibly thanks to the involvement of Pixar head John Lasseter. The film comes dangerously close to the Emoji movie at times, with pathetic nods to eBay and Google being particularly egregious. Much like the Emoji movie, the film desperately tries to cram in a convoluted plot, which acts more as a series of sketches rather than a complete narrative. As funny as the princess moment was, is it at all relevant? Not to spoil anything, but the ending's tired metaphor seemed to drag on and on to the point of boredom. On the plus side, the voice acting is as great as ever, as well as the animation also it didn't include a recent trend in Disney movies where a villain is revealed in the last 15 minutes. Not awful, but certainly the worst animated Disney since Meet the Robinsons. Uh, Dan O'Connor thought it was great, really fun. The portrayal of how the internet works was really clever and the bit with the singing clown had me laughing so hard I missed the next minute. (laughs) Also, took my five-year-old daughter who said, quote, the bit with the princesses was the best thing ever. Although in the last few months she has declared Jack-Jack from The Incredibles, The Minions and Minchok chip ice cream to be the The best best thing thing ever ever. so i'm not sure it's a view she'll hold forever 
Liam, uh, Liam Jarvis Milburn, Wreck-It Ralph left me feeling giddy six years ago, so it's disappointing to report that Ralph Breaks the Internet left me feeling very cold. There's heart in there somewhere, but it's buried under an irritating surface of smug self-congratulation and vapid consumerism. The film does its best to reflect modern life and technology, but in doing so, just makes it all the more depressing. I never thought I would hear a kid's film talk so openly about content and the commercialisation of online endeavours. If this film can inspire a new generation of young creatives with that message, then that's obviously fantastic, but I remain unconvinced that the message is a genuinely positive one. The film isn't a total waste of time, and there are some funny moments, but on the whole, disarmingly corporate and hard to like. And um, Ethan from Utah, uh, who says he's a new convict to the church. <laughs> which, OK, that's a phrase we're going to use. I quite like We're going to keep that. Convict's Convict, Corner. Convict's Corner. Uh, thanks, Ethan. I wasn't the biggest fan of Ralph Breaks the Internet. Felt it was more been there, done that affair with a couple of decent jokes sprinkled in from time to time. Certainly a better version of the Emoji movie, but I still didn't find it very compelling. Ralph is at number one. I mean... It's interesting. When I came out of the Emoji movie, uh, Van Conner, who's a friend of mine, um, uh, who's also a critic, said almost immediately, wow, who would have thought that the Emoji movie would have foreshadowed so much of that? And the minute he said it, I thought, oh, yes, you're absolutely right. And it immediately sort of, you know, made the experience I just had seem lesser. Now, whilst I was watching the film itself... I thought, okay, it's it's not as good as uh, Wreck It Ralph. It is definitely a, a, a sequel. It feels like something which is <clears throat> retreading ground that we've done before. But perhaps having gone in with sort of slightly dodgy expectations, I was surprised by how much I did enjoy it. The criticism about the Disney princesses sequence, I mean, does it really have any role? You're completely right. I mean, in order to set it up, they have to set up a, you know the chat room. And, 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 and it is true that you think... It's kind of gone off into a... It's almost as if that would have been a little short film on its own. But that said, that bit is really funny. And again, it's not saying anything that's massively new. We have heard some of those jokes, but it's done really well. So, I, you know, I, I don't understand people really disliking it. I'm, I can understand people being really disappointed if they absolutely loved Wreck-It Ralph and what they were expecting was Toy Story 2. Because as we've seen from the Toy Story movies, it is possible for for them to just kind of you know get better and better. Oh, I'm very worried about Toy Story four because it's just you know it's the perfect trilogy. Where you're going to go? But I thought in the case in the case of Ralph breaks the internet, it was there is something slightly old hat about the idea that he's going off into the internet because I feel like we've all kind of got used to yeah it's the internet. We, you know it's like it it's not the I mean you and I are old enough to have lived with. The first time I was at Radio One in an email, I got an email. I thought for years that email meant emergency mail. I thought it meant something. I didn't realise it meant electronic mail. I thought it meant urgent, urgent mail. So I did feel like the thing about the internet being the new thing for them felt a little bit. But I still thought it was funny and oddly charming. I've never heard anyone say that before. No one in in the world thought that email stood for emergency mail. I did. That's what I thought it meant. But remember, well, because why did you think that? Well, because e something means emergency. No, it where? Where does that? Where does he mean? Well, in a lot of things, if something, if you get an e-message, I, I thought, well, maybe it's just because I'm naturally in a state of heightened anxiety and panic. And I had a computer at Radio 1 that had a thing on it called email. I thought it was emergency mail. And then these things would come out. I didn't know how to open them. I just thought I have loads of emergency mail. It's like emergencies kicking off left, right and centre. And then I, I ended up saying to somebody, why am I getting all these emergency mails? And they went... <laughs> That's great. That's I can't believe you didn't know that. No, I'd never heard that before. I'm I'm a late adopter of technology. 
That's one way. That's <laughs> one way of describing it. Did you think an Ewok was an emergency watch? <laughs> I know. Ne- if there is anyone else, if there's anyone else who thought that an email was an emergency mail, I think Mark. Yeah, but this was a, this was in the this was back in the nineties. Well, send us an emergency mail immediately. Mail at bbc.co.uk. This is this is priceless stuff. Anyway, I can't be the only person who thought it. There must have been other people. Well, we'll find out. We shall find out. All right. So uh, reviews of new stuff uh, to come. First of all, as I mentioned, let's talk about a movie which is out next year. We're already into 2019. The movie is Welcome to Marwen, uh, and it's brand new from Steve Carell. You'll hear my conversation with Steve in just a second. First, here he is in the movie as Mark Hogenkamp. Dolls, listen up. Here's what you got to remember. We, us, we're here right now. We're still alive. And that's what matters. So a toast to life, to love, to Marwin, and the beautiful women thereof. There you are, you sneaky little witch. All right, girls, time to hit the hay. Wreck time. And that's a clip from Welcome to Marwen. I'm delighted to say that we've been joined by its star, Steve Carell. Hello, Steve. How are you? I'm well. How are you? It's very nice to see you again. Good to see you. I was looking at the poster. I spent a long time looking at the poster uh, for this movie. And it, there's lots of words and lots of images. And I thought, right, before we dissect the, the movie and the poster, can you explain everything about Marwen and why we're welcome to it? It, that is a very, very large question. It's a hard movie to describe because it encompasses so many things. It's based on a documentary about this man named Mark Hogenkamp who suffered a traumatic brain injury. He was beaten by a bunch of thugs outside of a bar in upstate New York. And he had been an artist leading up to this time. And the beating rendered him really helpless. He lost his memory He wasn't able to do much more than write his own name. So his art kind of went out the window. And as a coping mechanism, he created this World War, this scale model World War II town in his backyard. And he started taking pictures of it and documenting it. And that became his art installation and sort of a way of healing from this brain injury. And uh, he's a lovely guy. I've met him. He's incredibly kind and completely lacking in, of any sort of cynicism. And he's not angry. He's a very generous, gentle soul. That's really the core of the movie to me is the, the story of redemption, the story of, of hope that uh, he projects. So Marwin is this made-up village in Belgium which he has created. Because you said it's a difficult movie to describe. And one of the reasons for that is and this is where we're going to we are going to end up at the poster is because that there are some fantasy sequences and we see these uh, scenes reenacted so can you just explain a little bit about what that looks like in this film he projects himself into this fantasy world and in part because it's directed by Robert Zemeckis who's so well known for his work in motion capture and CG he's able to bring this doll world to life and incorporate these real-life characters into their doll counterparts. All the characters that exist in the real-life part of the movie also exist in this fantasy world, in the doll world, in these sort of idealized versions of, of who these human beings might be. So it's an interesting 
way to segue between the the fantasy and the reality and Mark's imagination and the the reality of his his life and his struggle. Yeah. So here we go. We get to the poster. In the poster, we see it says your name and it says Robert Zemeckis and it says from the director of Forrest Gump, which is, I think is quite interesting because it, it has a similar kind of feel and tone. Is that too misleading? I don't That's a lovely thing to say. I hope it has a tone that's similar because there is a sense of uh, a very open heart to the movie. So we see the two versions of you. So we see, are they two versions of you playing Hoagie? I don't know. It makes it look as though it's quite a quirky film Mm -hmm. and parts of it are quirky, but actually as he was assaulted so viciously, it has a very dark center. It does. It does. It's it's sort of an independent film wrapped inside this larger fantasy movie. So, I, yeah, that's the sense I got of it, too. There is a darkness because, again, it's based on this true story. There's a reality to it. There's, I think, a, a real integrity to the story because here's a guy who essentially was beaten in a hate crime and to come out of it. And I, I actually got an email from him last week, and he said that he's starting— this is the real Mark Hogan camp. He's starting to draw again because he's getting some dexterity back in his hands. So he's starting to illustrate a little bit more. So it's helping. You know, all of these things that he's done for himself are actually helping. I was going to ask you what he knows and what we know of his previous life before the attack. Because we know obviously a bit about the fact that he'd become an alcoholic and the fact his wife had left him and his life in the Navy. And so but he doesn't remember any of that? No. No. I mean, and it's come back in drips and drabs, but most of that is gone. And uh, he's tried to kind of recreate it as best he could through his family members telling him. And uh, I think some of his memory has come back over time. But, you know, the, the brain is an interesting thing in, in terms of how it reconnects itself and how it reroutes itself and finds a way. How did Robert Zemeckis pitch this to you or did you go and seek him out? I sought him out. I saw the documentary and I was captivated by it. And I thought this has to something something could be done with this. And I didn't know what, but I was interested in optioning it for my production company. And uh, I did some checking around and found that he had the option and had actually written a script based on it. And I threw my hat in the ring, even if not even to be a part of the cast, just to be a fly on the wall to see what he was doing with it. Because I was, I just, I loved the story so much. And I, I thought Mark Hogenkamp as a human being was so inspirational that I, I wanted to uh, just be a part of it in any way. I wonder if the movie actually plays to your natural strengths anyway, because there is a lot of comedy uh, in the film. There are some light-hearted moments, certainly in fantasy sequences, but actually there is some serious, straight, difficult character acting to do as well. Yeah, I, I thought the same thing. And there were, I don't know if it necessarily, I don't even know what I would consider my strengths as an actor, but... Well, both of those. <laughs> and well, I appreciate that. It just spoke to me. I, the story spoke to me. And I, I empathized with him as a human being. And I thought... Just the fact that he is so uncynical was important to me he, because I feel like so much of this of life in this day and age is based in cynicism and he is completely lacking in that and he's a very forgiving human being and that, that was special and unique to me. How long did you meet him for? Was, it, was he happy to receive you? Was he happy with the idea of this film? He was. I think he was apprehensive because, you know, it's his life and 
he is a fragile person. So he, I think he was apprehensive, but also excited about the prospect of it being made into a film and beyond the documentary. Because the documentary, it's interesting because y- you don't want to just remake the documentary. The documentary is a beautiful piece of filmmaking and really depicts his character and his struggles. And I think what Robert Zemeckis has done with this is expand the world and made it applied like a different narrative to it and made it into something else and instead of just a, a retelling of the, the story of the documentary. You described him as being fragile. Does that put extra weight and onus on the on the filmmakers and you to get this right. Oh, for sure. Yeah. Because I feel like we all owed it to him. And I think everyone who was involved with it felt the same way, that it was a labor of love and that he was always in the back of our minds. At least he was in mine as we were doing it, that this has to be true to his story and true to him as a person. I was hoping that it wouldn't take any shortcuts or shortchange his story because I think it's such a, a beautiful thing to tell. And do you know what he thinks? I don't think he's seen the film. I just saw the film myself last week, so I don't think he's seen it yet. But I will tell you that when the first trailer came out, I got a phone call from him. And he left a message. It was very cryptic. He said, Steve, this is Mark. Could you give me a call? And I thought, oh, man, that doesn't sound good. I, I wonder if it didn't register with him, didn't feel true. And so I called him back immediately. And he said, I've seen it 10 times now. And I cry every time. And he could not have been happier and was really emotional about it and excited to see his world expanded. And he even said... If I could have done that, that's what I would have done, to imagine these characters in this other world. And uh, so far, so good. I think we're on the right track. One of the things I enjoyed, I realize this might not be a question, this is more going to be a statement, but one of the things I enjoyed about your performance the most was we see you walking around Marwan, walking around your house, crossing the road, and so on. And so much of the character, I think, of who Mark is, is in the way you walk, because he was viciously beaten and he's recovering from that but there seems to be so much of his story just in your gait yeah in meeting him and in watching the documentary he has a very specific way of of moving and and speaking and he's an interesting guy i felt really privileged to get a chance to spend some time with him because he's so thoughtful and he's really a funny person too i didn't want that to be lost in the movie because he has a great sense of humor and he's very self-deprecating as well but he de- yeah he does have a different sort of gait and it was a traumatic beating that he went through and so much of this world that he created was a way of coping there's this alter ego in this fantasy world that's incredibly strong and brave and stands up to the Nazis in this little town. And of course, the Nazis are, they equate to the men who beat him up. So every day, he's able to play that out and to rectify it in his own head. And it's helpful. And I'm aware we've almost got to the end of the interview, and we haven't mentioned the high heels, which I think should be mentioned, because it, also it's in the first few minutes of, of the film, so I don't think it's it's much of a of a giveaway. What yeah. does, but just explain a little bit about where the high heels come into this story. Well, the real Mark enjoys wearing high heels, enjoys wearing women's shoes, which is the reason he was beaten in the first place. And it was that that propelled him into this world that he created. So that's an important component of the film is that he's unique, he's different, and he wasn't willing to back down from that. And so there's, I think, this inherent bravery 
to him as a human being and overcoming and sort of accepting himself as he is. And that's why it was described as a hate crime because yeah, because the guys had attacked him for for that very reason. Yeah, because he, he told them that. We see you in uh, a couple of new movies very quickly. I think in the new year, Beautiful Boy, mm-hmm. uh, and also Vice, where you play uh, Donald Rumsfeld. Right. I'm just dying to see this anyway, because the last time you were on, which for, was for Despicable Me 2, you kept on calling Kristen Wiig, you kept on calling uh, Kristen Bale. And, um, <laughs> just, and you're about to be in a movie uh, with Kristen Bale, so I hope you at least return the favour. Anyway, what can you tell us about those films? Because they both sound extraordinary movies. Well, Beautiful Boy is based on a book, or two books, written by David Chef and Nick Chef, father and son. And Nick went through a very arduous addiction to methamphetamines. And so it's their story of getting through that and persevering. And Timothy Chalamet plays Nick and is extraordinary. So yeah, that'll be coming out. And it's a tough thing to watch. I think the the director and the writers, filmmakers, really tried to make it as truthful as possible. So that it, it's, it's sort of unrelenting, but in a good way. And Vice is the movie of Dick Cheney, and I play Donald Rumsfeld, who became his mentor. And uh, it's in the vein of Big Short. It's absurd, and it doesn't really pull any punches. How difficult was it to get into Donald Rumsfeld's mind it, and it, character? Who? <laughs> <laughs> it was interesting. It was an experience. You know, I sort of along the lines of Foxcatcher, I, I watched as much as I could of him. I read as much about him and by him that I could uh, dig into. There's a lot of source material there, too. But you always have to take things like that with a grain of salt because things that somebody writes about themselves aren't necessarily truthful. Is that right? Uh, Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) It's a very different perspective. You know, it's your best guess as to who somebody is and what makes them tick. You know, you just try to get as close to it as you can. And short of doing an imitation, you just try to glean an attitude or an essence of, of who that person might be. Uh, Steve Carell, it's always a pleasure to have you on the show. Thank you very much, Steve, for coming in. Thank you. Uh, Welcome to Marwen is out in UK cinemas on uh, on January the first. So so I haven't seen it yet, but obviously you you have because it. But it it does sound like a hard movie to describe. To describe, which is why when he said it's a hard movie to describe, (laughs) and the and the poster, I think is slightly misleading. But anyway, go see it. It's it's what is the poster? It's engaging. Uh, It's a kind of it's a model of his character, Hoagie, sitting next to a fully life-sized but slightly animated version. Of, okay. And it, it looks as though it's just a light-hearted yeah. piece. Okay. Uh, which it isn't. On the subject, just merely moments ago, uh, yeah. Mark told us that he thought that email was, was emergency mail. Yes. When it first came out, not now. Yeah. Stuart in London, I confess to thinking apps was short for appendages, but I've never thought the E in email meant emergency. So far, nobody has. Andrew Mackin, uh, my mum thought WTF... Uh, meant, well, that's fantastic. <laughs> um, <laughs> well, that is fantastic. And, and that's how I'm going to think of it from now on. Yeah. And another Simon says, with Mark's revelation regarding emergency mail, today's show has just passed the six laugh test. <laughs> so it's just a couple of minutes away from uh, the three o'clock news. You just want to mention a reissue. Yeah, since we just have a look, because we're going to be talking about the new Robert Redford film, which he, Robert Redford has talked about as being his last film later on in the show. That's called The Old Man and the Gun. There is a reissue this week of Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, which uh, is important for a number of reasons. Uh, we lost William Goldman recently, who, of course, won the Oscar for uh, Best Rock 
writing not previously published or produced. And, uh, and he was a screenwriter on it. Yeah, he was a screenwriter on it. Yeah, and he was, he was the person who gave us the phrase, in Hollywood, nobody knows anything. And, you know, absolutely brilliant writer and somebody who opened up the world of screenwriting through his uh, through his books but also because I was looking this up this this version of the film which has just recently been passed that is coming back out and um it turns out that it has been cut by one second by the BBFC. This is the new one. The new version, which is going to be in cinemas. It's lovely to go and see Bruce, uh, go and see Bruce, um, Butch Cassidy and the Sunlots Kid in cinema because it's such a great film and it's got, you know, the raindrop sequence, which again is a completely out of place, but is a lovely sequence. Anyway, it's been cut by one second. And the one second it's been cut by was a compulsory cut. It's a PG certificate because it was cut under the Animals Act 1937 and it was because it includes a scene of a tripwire being used on an animal which is now which it's, it's it's an act of cruelty and so that's no longer allowed and i mention it because we talk quite a lot about the treatment of animals in films and the way in which the bbfc deal with it and the bbfc have this policy that if something infringes the animals act it comes out and i have always thought this is one of the things about the bbfc that i have absolutely no problem with they've gone through they've found one second in which there's the use of a tripwire and that scene has come out that sequence, that one second, so, okay, that one so second. Has come we'll out. talk about the new Robert Redford film in the next hour. It's called The Old Man and the Gun. But it is worth saying that Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid is getting a cinematic, cinematic re-release in. Yeah, I mean selected cinemas. But if you, you Google it, it is playing, and it's lovely to see it on the big screen because it's such a great film. It's such a great film, and you can marvel at the screenplay because it is one of the, it is one yeah. of the classics, and it, one of the greatest endings of a modern yes. movie. Uh, what are you going to be reviewing in the next hour? We're going to be talking about Sorry to Bother You. We're going to be talking about The Old Man and the Gun. We're going to be talking about Mug, all that and more. On the basis uh, of our previous correspondent who thought apps were short for appendages, yes. it was the BBC Sounds appendage. That would be, <laughs> take it into a whole different territory, wouldn't it? But how useful it would be anyway. Uh, Anthony Johnson from Kensal Rise. Hello. Oh, on, Kensal Rise. On last week's show, Mark deservedly eulogised Roma and referred to the film as being given a theatrical release by Netflix in the UK. In fact, the film is being briefly released in only nine screens in the UK through a single cinema chain, which is Curzon. Yeah, I know. Therefore, most people will not have the opportunity to see the film theatrically in the UK. So it's an interesting question whether this approach actually constitutes a real theatrical release. I'm presuming this strategy is to allow the film to be reviewed in the media, therefore to qualify for awards prior to being consumed in and by the Netflix library. And I'm wondering what Mark's opinion on what constitutes a theatrical release is. My own opinion is that I'm very impressed Netflix are funding this type of film and TV show. However, I think it is disingenuous to claim that Roma and also The Ballad of Buster Scruggs are being given a th real theatrical release as most people will not have the opportunity to see the films theatrically. Yeah, so, um, I mean, this is an ongoing uh, conversation, an ongoing debate. I've done a couple of blogs about it on Uncut. Um, one of the... Th the one of the issues in the changing marketplace is if stuff is shown on the you know uh, for home viewing and also available in cinemas do we call it a home viewing release or do we call it a cinema release and how many cinemas does it have to be played in in order to constitute a theatrical release so for example there are times when i have led on a uh, you know, a, a fairly small release like Holam recently, um, you know, a, a small movie, 
And that film was probably played in seven or eight cinemas, no more than that. But it has had a theatrical release, but it's not playing at multiplexes. We've always said, if that's the case, you know, it is worth seeking out, but you may need to wait for DVD. And then there are some things in which the films are released in cinemas. Thank you. And also on, um, you know, streaming Why services at the same time, you, because then? Sophie just brought me a cup of coffee and I can't just allow Sophie to leave without saying thank you because I consider it impolite um, because I was brought up proper. It's like a nerve thing. I can't do it. Um, so the Netflix model is definitely that what they want is for it to be part of their library and for people to watch it on Netflix and for people to be subscribers. But in the case of Roma, they did definitely have, they have done more screenings than they have with some. I mean, I know particularly I was talking to Mark Cosgrove at the watershed in Bristol, who was talking about when... Is he in charge? Okay. Yeah, he's in charge of the Watershed okay. Presser, yeah. Who, who, when Ava DuVernay's uh, 13th came out, they weren't able to show it because it, it was showing in like one cinema in London and it wasn't able to be booked into any other cinemas. So I do wonder, you know, it is definitely... So in your opinion, if it's a nine screen and it's only Curzon, is that good enough? It, well, it is still technically a theatrical release because I have reviewed and championed films which have played in less than that. Okay, um, but it is definitely true that we would like it. To, we would like those films to be available in many more. And I absolutely understand the argument that you know what if it's a if it's if it's a film with a high profile like Roma is. You know, they're talking about it as an awards contender and all the rest of it. Wouldn't it be great if it was available in more cinemas? Um, however, what the, the the release plan is, as far as I understand, is that the release is widening between now and when the film is available on Netflix. So it will be going into more screens. And the 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 announcement from the distributors was that at the point at which it goes on Netflix, which I think is December the, the it's quite soon, that the, that will, it will then be at the widest point of its release. So okay. the, the, it was starting smaller and then, so it was a selected release for the first week and then widening up and then widening further still in the same week that it went on Netflix. So they are definitely giving it more screenings than have been the case in the past. Uh, lots of reviews coming up. A number of people getting in touch say they're looking forward over the Christmas period to seeing E.T., which is, of course, the emergency terrestrial. <laughs> that's going to be coming up. This and, is going to run and run, isn't it? And Wall E, of course, Wall Emergency. emergency. That's going to be... Uh, a lot of people's seasonal favourite. So uh, tell us something that's brand new and doesn't involve the letter E. Okay, so Sorry to Bother You, which is um, this sort of extraordinary uh, satire from Boots Riley set in an alternative version of contemporary Oakland. And the best way of describing it is if you imagine, you know Terry Gilliam's film Brazil, um, which was sort of like a dystopian future, but it was also like a retro future. So it's a, it was a vision of something that seemed eerily prescient, eerily present, but it was a, you know, it was a future, but it seemed like the world in which we live. Well, in the case of this, it's a version of the world that we know, but it's just twisted and wonky enough to have a sort of science fiction inflection to it. A uh, young man played by Lucky Stanfield is living in his uncle's garage with his girlfriend, played by Tessa Thompson. He's a bit of a wastrel. He hasn't particularly done anything extraordinary with his life. She, however, is an artist who does performance art and gallery art. And uh, she moonlights as a graffiti artist with this um, this anti-corporate collective called Left Eye. But she earns a minimum wage living as a sign twirler. You know, people who stand on the side of the streets and twirl signs, which has become, weirdly enough, its own form of performance art. The way in which you twirl signs has become quite extraordinary. So in this world, the most popular TV show is a show called I Got the <coughs> Kicked Out of Me, which is literally a television programme of people getting punched in the face. And there are adverts for this thing called Worry-Free Living. Worry-Free Living, which is essentially 
voluntary imprisonment that you sign yourself over to worry free living they give you a you know a, a bed to sleep in in something which looks like a prison cell they give you three square meals a day and you have to work on a production line so it is essentially something that looks exactly like slavery it's modern slavery but with this kind of quirky voluntary element so as i said this is a satire it's like the real world but slightly removed from the real world anyway our anti-hero as i said you know that Brazil thing about posters. You know, don't 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 suspect a friend. Report them anyway. So our anti-hero's uncle is starting to think that he is so hard up for money that actually he he started to consider worry-free living because you know the adverts make it look like, hey, looks great, three square meals, and they take care of all your health issues and all the rest of it. And so he says, no, no, I will pay the rent. I'm behind on the rent. I will pay the rent. So he takes a job in telemarketing. He, they give him the job immediately because they say, well, you know, you, you've got initiative and you can read. So basically you can do telemarketing. And on the first day on the job, he's cold calling people and can't get anywhere until a co-worker played by Danny Glover teaches him a very important trick. Hey, young blood, let me give you a tip. Use your white boys. Man, I ain't got no white voice. Oh, come on, you know what I mean. You have a white voice in there, you can use it. It's like when you're pulled over by the police. Oh, no, I just use my regular voice when that happens. I just say, back up off the car and don't nobody oh, get out. Right, man, I'm just trying to give you some game. You want to make some money here? Then read the script with a white voice. Well, people say I talk with a white voice anyway, so why ain't it helping me out? Well, you know... Talk white enough. I'm not talking about Will Smith white. I'm talking about the real deal. Like this young blood. Hey, Mr. Kramer. This is Langston from Regal View. I didn't catch you at the wrong time, did I? So immediately there's a device which is that the, the white voice is an, is an overdubbed voice. And in fact, at some point later on the film, somebody says, wow, you actually sound overdubbed, which is kind of self-reflexive gag. So he starts using the white voice. And the next thing is he starts climbing up the chain. He starts getting sales. He starts, you know, racking up the scores. And people keep talking about this thing about becoming a power caller, becoming a power caller, which is the next stage up. The stuff you're selling now, that doesn't really make money on the encyclopedias. If you become a power caller, that's the thing. So the film starts to become a parable about climbing up the greasy pole and what you have to do to climb the greasy pole and who you have to sell out and which... Uh, ideals and morals you have to put behind you in order to do that. Now, from the very beginning of the film, there is this surreal element. I mean, it's initially sort of slightly in the background. As I said, it's like the television adverts. It's the thing about worry-free. It's that television program. When he first starts doing the cold calling, there's this very kind of Michel Gondry-esque physical metaphor joke that he's sitting at his desk and he cold calls somebody. And the next thing is his desk falls into their room. So he's right there in the room with somebody who he's just ringing up who's having their breakfast or somebody else who he's cold called who's actually in a more intimate situation or somebody else who he's cold called who's in the bathroom. And so the visual gag is that his desk literally falls in. So you get the idea that the film has a kind of surreal physical metaphor thing going on. And as the film progresses, it starts to become more and more outlandish. You meet Army Hammer, who is this sort of coke-snorting CEO of the power callers, who is this like demonic, messianic figure, who has a kind of strangely seductive air, in much the same way as Ron Perlman in The, in the Last Supper. And then, at a certain point in the film the film starts to take left turns that are completely unexpected. And without giving anything away, 
I think you can say that the the comparative the comparison points would be if you think of a film like, for example, Lindsay Anderson's Oh Lucky Man, which is the middle of the trilogy, which begins with If and ends with Britannia Hospital. That's a story which begins as somebody as a you know traveling tea salesman and then goes off into completely different and weird areas. Or if structurally, if you think of a movie like, and I know this will leap immediately to your mind, yes, you think of a movie like Brian Yusner's film Society, oh, yeah. which is a film which starts out as a satire on class and a satire on privilege and a satire on the way it is that, that rich people are not like you or I, that kind of, you know, the, the Fitzgerald thing, and then takes that and turns it into some kind of completely bizarre physical metaphor, which is what an awful lot of you know, body horror movies, Cronenberg or a movie like Tetsuo the Iron Man were doing, they're taking ideas and they were sort of representing them physically. And so the film, right from the very beginning, has it tells you that what it's going to be doing is taking ideas and representing them as visual metaphors. So as the film then becomes increasingly sort of strange and weird and wondrous. I mean, some people have said it's a film of two halves. It's a film which moves along like one kind of film and then something happens and it turns into another film. That's, I think that's, that's actually not true. I think everything that happens in the latter half of the film, which is weird and crazy and inflected by genre filmmaking, is all set up at the beginning. And the skill of it is that the, the change of tone from one to the other, from comedy to horror from something which is sort of slight socio-political satire into something which is very very clearly you know um, an analysis of capitalism and exploitation and coercive capitalism and exactly what you lose when you sell out and it it makes that move in a way which is completely natural plus it's very very funny i mean right from the very beginning the jokes are very funny and as the film starts to get its hooks into you and as it becomes more and more this kind of very weirdly adventurous physical metaphor analogy for selling out and for you know capitalism the, the the jokes keep coming, but they just turn, they be, they become darker and darker in terms of their tone. And the film itself, therefore, kind of slides gently from being, you know, what starts like a comedy film into something which is I mean, science fiction inflected or horror inflected or fantasy inflected, that, you know, stream of uh, of surreal cinema. So I thought it worked really, really well. It began life as an idea, which uh, which really had as a song and then as a script and then as an album and then as a published script. And it's one of those passion projects that's been taken ages in getting it together. Sundance Lab assisted and then, you know, Sundance Sensation. And for a long time, there was a conversation about whether or not the film would get the proper release that it deserved. I thought it was really remarkable. It was really sharp, really funny, very adventurous, and reminded me of some films that I love, but also went off in ways that I completely didn't expect. And yeah, it, I thought I thought it was really, really good. It's called uh, Sorry to Bother You. Andrew and Kidbrook, I saw it at the London Film Festival. I've been waiting for the wide release so I can hear it covered on your wonderful programme. Which one's that? The one that you do on Radio 2? I thought it was stylish, ambitious, opinionated, shocking, gross and funny. Good. A future cult classic, I predict the poster for this film will replace Pulp Fiction as the go-to for student dorm rooms. That's a sharp analysis. That's very good. What's on the poster? Well, it's the poster is him with the headband and the head wound and the, you know, you'll recognise it if you see it. Okay. 
Robin uh, says, uh, I so wanted to like this film with its natty soundtrack, okay, yeah. quirky editing, dynamic characters. It felt cool and interesting, said in the future. Yes, I can tell from the tone of this, guy. Distinctly 80s feel, it promised so much, but sadly my bottom doesn't lie. It always knows when something is inherently dull by going numb. It's a message when I feel I find myself sighing as if disappointed the film has failed my body's litmus test. The jokes were sporadic, and whilst funny in principle, nobody laughed. They Really? Like, Where did you see it? All fell flat. It certainly didn't make the six, and this was amongst an open-minded, enthusiastic film fan audience. It was heavily satirical with an Orwellian tone. Yes, which I mentioned Brazil, which but obviously after a is... solid build-up, it seemed to lose aim with no clear message or payoff. It had companion piece to get out, writ large, but really it was a get-out wannabe. I don't regret the 105 minutes I spent in its company, but sadly it felt more like 200. OK, I disagree. Which is not great, as my bottom can attest. I disagree entirely. I think your bottom's completely off on this one. Laura says, Laura B., I managed to see Sorry to Bother You at my local multiplex's mystery movie night last week. Oh, great. That, that, that would be a great mystery movie. My thoughts on it? Apology not accepted. <laughs> I get the political meanings and I get the comedy, but... While each bizarre element has something positive to be said about it, they clash when put next to each other. Too many ingredients, not big enough broth pot, but compliments to the chef for doing something unusual. OK. Uh, Max... Can uh, I just very quickly respond to that? Endorf. I think... I, I do think that if you're... OK, without... If you loved society, you will love this. Max Bendorf, first-time writer in a relatively long-time listener of a couple of years, considering I'm only 17. Hello, Max. Hello. I have just been to uh, Odeon's Screen Unseen and can't wait to see what Mark's going to think. We well, just heard that. The film was sorry to bother you. What started out as a dark comedy descended into absolute lunacy. Yep. Truly one of the oddest films I have ever seen. Yep. Funny and breathtakingly original. It was like Black Beauty meets The Purge meets Office Space. That's his uh, okay. assessment. Okay. Anyway, uh, so thank you very much. That's... Uh, sorry to bother you. I, I do quite like the, the Laura's review saying apology not accepted. Yeah, that's, <laughs> that's pretty good. Yeah, but then again, it's like that's the great, it's the great critical thing, isn't it? Don't slip into, you know, you think of the smart thing to say, but it doesn't mean it's right. Although heaven knows we've all done we've that. We've all done it. Anyway, looking forward to, uh, I think, with Nail and Eyes on at the weekend. I'm going to look forward to that with Richard Emergency Grant. That's going to be... <laughs> I didn't see it coming. I should have done... There's quite a few statues being... Um, controversial statues in America of Robert Emergency Lee. Lee. I don't know what you... <laughs> anyway, so... Somebody got into an emergency type jag. So... <laughs> it's just, it's so many. For, it's so at, many. At least a week, definitely. Yeah. Uh, 322, what else you got? White Boy Rick, which is the new film by Jan de Marge, who made 71. Remember 71 that I talked about, which was this... I think it was this really, really sort of intense film... Um, about the Troubles, it starred uh, Jack O'Connell, and one of the I things I do remember you talking about. That. Yeah, and I I really liked it. And one of the things I liked most about it was just how well it evoked its sense of time and place. So, this is based on the true story of Richard Worcester Jr., who became apparently the youngest ever FBI informant at the age of fourteen in the early eighties. So, uh, Richie Merritt stars as Rick Jr. and Matthew McConaughey is his dad. I was eldest. Well, that's what Matthew McConaughey sort of sounds like he's doing an Elvis impression, doesn't it? All right, all right, all right. No. Mm. You, you, your voices are very good, Mark. Thank you. I don't want you to take the wrong way. But you, you talked to I, Matthew McConaughey about that when you when you interviewed him about the McConaughey's. He's a thing that he does. All right, all right, all right. 
Okay, getting warmer. No, getting colder again. Okay, fine. So we first meet them um, in the early 80s at a gun show. And Richard the Older buys weapons legally, which he then modifies and sells illegally. So he's running this kind of illegal business out of his basement. And his son follows him slavishly to the gun shows and he's co-opted into selling these illegally uh, modified weapons to local gangs. Meanwhile, Rick's sister, Dawn, played by Belle Powley, is an addict and she's desperate to leave the house. Um, his grandparents, Richard's parents, played by Bruce Dern and Piper Laurie, live across the street and the family are clearly a big presence in the street. They're people who live life, their life sort of, you know, with... They're, they're not against having a shouting match in the street. Go! Get back. Get off of me! Get back in the house, Don. Go in the house and get dressed. We're... No! Dad! Dad! Stop. Dad! Stop. Wait. No. No. Dad! Ah, keep going. I got it under control. You don't need to stop the car, Pop. Everything's fine. Don't get out of the car. Everything is not fine. A man just ran out of your house almost since my Imperial. You don't have a thing under you. control. You looking to let her talk to you? I'm like going to the goddamn Shut house. Up. I got oh, this under control, no, all right? It ain't under control. Hey, stay out of it. Looks like Richard's having a bad day. No, Ma, I'm not having a bad day. My son and I walked into the lion's den this morning and walked out with the golden fleece. Ain't that right, Ricky? That's right. That's right. You're pathetic. Both of you. Hey, put some clothes on, will you? We're going for custard. See, I told you the custard was coming back. I told you the custard was coming back. It's like the whole show is knitted together with With custard. The custard was knitted with custard. That's us. So now I didn't know this story beforehand, and some people might do. I I, I hadn't heard any of it. So I benefited from watching the film unfold. You know, I didn't know anything. I hadn't. I don't think I'd even sort of seen a trailer. And you heard from that clip, Bruce Dern being. I mean, I love Bruce Dern. Uh, It's a very, it's a very fine ensemble cast. Um, it's not a spoiler because it's it's kind of the setup of the movie to say that what happens is that FBI agents led by Jennifer Jason Lee come circling around. They see this young boy going out, essentially running errands for his dad. They see him going house to house and they think, fine, because of what we know about his dad and because of what we know about him, we can use him. And they co-opt him basically into buying and selling drugs for them in order to secure busts. And that's the setup of the story. But the question is, what happens when they've done the bust? What happens when they've you know, he's essentially run his course with them. What happens to his life after that? And in the same way that 71 did a really good job of evoking that feel of those streets in the 1970s, this does an equally good job of evoking the the milieu, excuse me, the milieu of the 1980s. I mean, everything's sort of filmed in these washed out, desperate colours, except for a sequence where they go off to Vegas and suddenly everything kind of brightens up. It's as if somebody's turned all the, you know, all the contrast off on the television in a way that would surely annoy Tom Cruise. And the film does clearly have star names in it, but one of the things I liked best about it was that it is an ensemble film. It is a film in which Matthew McConaughey's character is actually effectively playing second banana to uh, the character played by Richie Merritt, who is really the you know the centre of attention. You have Jennifer Jason Lee and Bruce Dern and Piper Laurie, all you know playing as second players, ensemble players. So wherever you look, the film's got very very fine actors clearly you know doing work that they believe in because they all seem completely natural i mean you do believe in the family you do believe in the two houses you do believe in the way it sprawls 
And the other thing that's clever about it is that when you look at the subject matter, essentially, you know, it's talking about people who are uh, you know, buying and selling, illegally buying and selling uh, guns and drugs. And the consequences of that trade are on display. I mean, they're, you know, people, innocent people become, addict, become addicted. Innocent people become, are, are, are shot. Uh, there's, you know, warfare breaking out in the streets. And they are part of that market. And yet what the film does is, at the same time as recognising that everything that's going on is abhorrent, it it makes you think, oh, well, you know, there, there, is, there is a sympathetic side to these characters. And you see that partly through the way in which the FBI and the police deal with them, and partly through the fact that through Richie Merritt's uh, sort of performance, you see his character seeing the world around him and learning how the world around him works and then becoming part of it, feeling that he needs to be a sort of, you know, a cog in, in this machine. It's a very odd film. It's weirdly melancholic. It's got a very kind of downbeat feel to it. For a film which, you know, has, you know, busts and uh, shootouts and all that sort of stuff, it is a film with a very melancholy, downbeat, sort of poignant tone. And the times at which it works best, I think, are the interactions between this between the family, between these characters who's, you know, who are living a, a you know, virtually breadline existence but are, you know, somehow managing to scrap together this existence in the only way they know how. And there's one scene in which the son says to the father, we have to do something. Look, look at us. Look at how we live. Look at the situation we're in. He's just crashed his car. Look at what we're in. We have to do something and we have to do something now. And it does that thing of sort of making you understand how the characters then go on to do what it is that they go on to do, which is, you know drugs and guns which are you know clearly reprehensible occupations so i think it's not i mean i don't think it's for everybody i think it's going to find it's going to have a hard time finding it's finding an audience because it's it is an ensemble piece it's not a star-led piece and it is a very very downbeat story but i i i thought it, i could i could feel the coldness of the streets i could feel the you know the the grit under its fingernails, and for the, all the time that I was watching the movie, I absolutely believed that I was watching these characters and watching the narrative unfold in this strange and twisted way. So I quite liked it. It's called White Boy Rick, and Eddie Marsden's in it. Eddie Marsden's in it very briefly because you know and, when he was in, yeah, he we, we finally discovered we've been pronouncing his name wrong. Eddie Marsden, it's, it's Eddie Marsden because yeah. he said it's French. Yeah, okay. So all the way through the interview, I interviewed him on Radio Two because he's also got a small part in the Mowgli. Yes, that's right. He uh, does. Yeah, movie. He voices the father wolf. Yeah. Um, and I'm calling it Eddie Marzan because yeah. he's, he's just said that he already yes. told us Eddie Marzan. So then he he went and recorded some drops, as they say in the business, some kind of IDs. So he says, "Hello, this is Eddie Marzan on Radio Two. So it, when it, so it's Eddie Marzan. Okay. So we were right, and when he told us it was Eddie Marzan, he was wrong. Well, I wish there'd been more of of because he said, however you know, however you pronounce his name, I wish there'd been more of him. When you're first introduced to him in this film, he's dancing. And you know when yeah, he came on, cool he, he is a really good dancer because that was the thing that he always used to do. He was a dancer first. He was, really a, he was a soul boy. And he's there's a scene in that in which he has one really blistering scene and then there's another scene when he opens the door to somebody and says, what are you doing here? And you think that you're going to see... But it looks like in the in the edit, in the shuffle, because it, there are so many great characters, it just looks like that got lost. I would I could have done with much more of him. All films could be better with more, more Eddie, Eddie Marzan. Marzan. Eddie Marzan. Okay, in the next half hour, apart from uh, our TV movie of the week. Uh, Await further instructions and The Old Man and the Gun.
TV movie of the week. Uh, Karen Richardson. I'll go with The Impossible. Hard to watch, but a compelling story of a family caught up in an unimaginable situation. Also love the underrated Edge of Tomorrow, which I think Mark will go for. Great chemistry between Emily Blunt and Tom Cruise. Jason Simpson. Oh, come on. Apollo 13, Star Wars, Casino and Edge of Tomorrow, all on the same list. It's unfair. <laughs> I'm going to pick Jason and the Argonauts because, one, it's still brilliant. Two, Ray Harryhausen is a god and three i'm named after it says jason simpson named after jason and the argonauts wow i imagine as he's called jason no no, i know but that's what an interesting thing that's what he's named after mike everest i wonder what he's named after some blistering (laughs) some blistering choices in there this week mark will choose arietti as he's contractually obliged to love japanese animation have you ever heard that gerard hoffnung uh this is gerard hoffnung speech which he begins by saying my name's gerard hoffnung Gerard after my father and Hoffnung after, after Gerard. Gerard. Yes, I have. He's very funny. Phil Donald. Uh, lol, the goose steps out. The goose steps out is great. The goose steps out. He stepped in again. The goose stepped out. He stepped in again. That was Mud's biggest hit. I'll have a double header between Edge of Tomorrow with its Groundhog Day with Guns plot and Steeped in Great War Allegory or Jason and the Argonauts. Love it. Such a brilliant score with superb Harry Housen effects. 60% of the acting in the film is accomplished with eyebrows alone. <laughs> John McBrain, I have a soft spot for Jason and the Argonauts, mainly because it evokes memories of my childhood, of wet Sunday afternoons, sitting indoors and watching this film on TV. I really like The Edge of Tomorrow and feel it deserved to do way better than it did, but my TV movie of the week is Apollo 13, because it doesn't matter how many times I've seen... <coughs> excuse me. It doesn't matter that you <laughs> you know how it ends. Excuse me. You're right. Yes. It's a fantastic story, brilliantly executed in film. And... Yes, Jason Marsden. It has to be School for Scoundrels, brilliant satire on manhood and a career best performance from TT. So what is our TV movie of the week? I'm going to go for Edge of Tomorrow, which I really, really liked. Um, it, when Edge of Tomorrow came out on on DVD, the words Live, Die, Repeat were bigger than the title because that was the original um, The original that was going to be called Live, Die, Repeat, and then it ended up being called Edge of Tomorrow, and it's based on All You Need Is Kill. I think basically All You Need Is Kill and Live, Die, Repeat are better titles than Edge of Tomorrow, but it is good. There is great chemistry between uh, Tom Cruise and Emily Blunt, and, and actually I, you know, Tom Cruise is now in my mind because of that thing about uh, him and Chris McQuarrie getting fretty about people's um, about their settings on there. I'm, I'm going to go straight back to my television and try and find that. So I'm sure that my television doesn't have it, actually, because it's a little bit older, but um, and uh, turn all that stuff off. You've probably got a voice button where you press the voice button and say, Oi, turn that movie thing motion bit off, and it'll probably just do it for you. Have you got that? No, but you probably have. Why? I've, my television would be older than your television. You might have a teenager who could just say, You could just say, Oi, Yes, well, that's what I'll do. I say, say Oi, teenager, that. sort that out. So when is that? When is Edge of Tomorrow? Edge of Tomorrow on? is on uh, 9 p.m. on Sunday on 5. Thank you very much. TV movie's so bad, it's bad. Mm. Christopher Wilson, I vote Arthur 2. Uh, Terry Hurley, to paraphrase. I tell you, I, I'm sure I have. I interviewed Liza Minnelli and I said, what was wrong with Arthur too? And she went, it wasn't funny. Terry Hurley says, to paraphrase Ian Malcolm from Jurassic Park, uh, <laughs> you do uh, plan to have Thunderbirds in your Thunderbird movie. <laughs> Mark Harrison, Allied, has no place on this list, if only for Jared, Jared Harris's Oscar-worthy delivery of the line, show me your chickens, Max. Um, surely the good doctor's going to go for Nativity 3. That's MJ Johnson. Neil Binns, as execrable as Allied is... Execrable. Not here it isn't. Not execrable, that's not a word. Thunderbirds is almost infinitely worse. 
and James Waller Davis, anything with a two in it. So Arthur two and Aliens and Godfather part two don't count. It's the two that kills the movie. I see. In James's opinion. What is the TV movie that's so bad? It's actually bad. Well, I am going to go for it because at the moment there's a nativity movie which is actually not bad. Uh, but the, fa- the fact of the matter is that Nativity 3, Dude, Where's My Donkey, was just beyond terrible. It was execrable. It was execrable. And when, when can I avoid Nativity 3? You can avoid Nativity 3, Where's My Donkey. Is it my, on 5 Star Plus 1? It's on 5. It's on at 5 past 4 in the afternoon on Sunday on 5. So 5 has got all the hits and all the misses. It's got the bangers and the clangers. <laughs> That's very good. So it's 3.42. Uh, what else is new and exciting and interesting? So a new film, uh, The Old Man and the Gun, which stars Robert Redford in what has been reported to be his uh, his final role. He's the, the, the narrator in Buttons, isn't he? But he has said, he's also said, never say never. Um, but he said that when he was, as he was going into it, he said, "This I think this is going to be the last one I do." I, you know, he said, "I've been doing this for however long it is since, since I was in my early twenties, and you know, I've decided." To, and whether or not it is his final role, I have to say, it would be a brilliant note to end on. Not because I don't think Robert Redford has got more greatness in him, because I'm a huge fan of Robert Redford, and he was lovely when he came on the show, and I love the fact that he, his assistant set his watch fast because he's always late at least half an hour so the only way to do it is to make his watch tell completely the wrong time so the story is which is based on a true story it says at the beginning and it's also based on a true story on the life of an american career criminal and perennial jailbird uh he plays uh forrest tucker who at the beginning we see forrest and uh danny glover and tom waits as a gang who rob a bank. And they do it in a way which is very polite, very low-key, and very unthreatening, and also weirdly smiling. Uh, they rob small banks, not too big a haul, and they do it in a way that they, you know, they wander into the bank, and Robert Redford says, you know, hello, this is a stick-up, and he pulls back his jacket to reveal that he has a gun. Does he have a gun? Did they actually see a gun? And hand over the money, thank you very much, puts it in the bag, and they walk out. And the first job we see them do, they walk out of it, and he gets into his car, and he drives off, and he's got this kind of beaming, beatific smile on his face. And on the freeway, he drives past a broken-down truck, you know, a, um, a, a wagon, and Sissy Spacek is standing there with the front open, looking at it, and there's steam coming out of the radiator, and he pulls over because he's a gentleman. He goes over and he says, "What well, you know, she says, I think it's the radiator. Do you think it could be the radiator? And he says, oh, yeah, it could be. She says, do you know about cars? He says, no. He says, no. And the next thing, they're in a diner together. So obviously he's given her a lift. They've called the thing. He's in a diner. And there's a sort of twinkly thing going on. He's charming. She's, you know, I mean, they're both characters who you immediately sort of find very, very likable. She's called Jewel. She's such a you know great name. And she says, so, you know, what do you do? And he says, initially, he says, oh, well, I'm in, I'm in sales. And then he says, no, I'm not in sales. I, I lied to you. I but I lied to you because if I told you what I did do, you wouldn't speak to me. And she says, well, tell me what you do. Okay, well, let's take this place. This place is not my style. But say it was a bank. And instead of that counter up there, that was really a teller's window. And that lady standing there was the teller behind the window. And you just walk in real calm. And you find yourself a spot and you sit down. Just like we're sitting here. And you wait and you watch. And that may take a couple of hours, might take a couple of days even, but you wait. It's got to feel right. The timing has to feel right. And when it does feel right, you make your move. So you walk right up, 
look her in the eye and you say, ma'am, this is a robbery. And you show her the gun like this. So you hear that kind of, that, mm-hmm. that lovely sort of spark on his voice. Anyway, so because these robberies appear to be fairly low-key, nobody pays much attention to them, except for Casey Affleck's detective, who starts to realise that this story about these old guys holding up a bank, well, there's another story, another about the same guy, and he starts to put together an MO that actually it's the same people. It's not just one-offs, it's not random things, that they're doing this and they've been doing it for a while. So he starts to make it his mission to take them down. And he realises that all these kind of scattershot robberies are connected. Meanwhile, oh, he he dubs them the the over-the-hill gang, which is actually very funny. Meanwhile, there is this kind of beginning of a relationship between Redford's character and Sissy Spacek's character. They're getting to know each other. And he's sort of said, oh, actually, I'm joking about the bank thing. But he sort of told her, but he sort of hasn't. She kind of knows, but she kind of doesn't. It's directed by David Lowry, who made um, Ain't Them Buddies Saints, which is this sort of Western revisionist, you know, modern Western, which I described at the time as having a feel of a film which took place in the aftermath of something. And he also did um, Ghost Story, which is such a, such a strange movie, very, very good. And he has, I mean, I, I love his filmmaking. I think he's, he's, he's very good at mood and he's very good at setting. And what happens in this is, you you're sort of charmed into the the life of these characters by the performances and the next thing you know you're sitting there in the cinema at least i was sitting in the cinema with a smile on my face that went from ear to ear as this very low-key very gentle very amiable story of bank robbing unfolds before you and during the course of the film it sort of refers back to this guy's life and we find out more and more things about his life and more about who he actually is. And there's actually one moment in which they sort of rather cheekily use a clip from an earlier Redford film. So there is, because Redford has in his back catalogue The Sting and Butch and Sundance, which in some ways kind of thematically connect with that, you know, the idea of that you're doing a con, you're doing a robbery, you're putting stuff up, but, but you are, you know, it's Paul Newman and Robert Redford and you have great affection for these characters. And at the centre of it is the relationship between these uh, central characters. And the relationships are played so beautifully and so perfectly that it is impossible not to be completely won over by them. Firstly, between Forrest Tucker and Danny Glover's Teddy Green and Tom Waits' character. And Tom Waits, you know, I like it. I enjoy a Tom Waits impression. There is a sequence in this in which they're all sitting along a bar and Tom Waits starts to tell this story and I've just made a program for uh, BBC Four about Christmas movies, and I swear, if we hadn't locked the edit, I would have said we have to have the whole of Tom Waits doing this story about Christmas. He's just sitting in a bar, and he's just telling the story about you know my my you know, my mother you know following off. He she married this guy. He turns out to be a cop, and you know. And anyway, I won't spoil it. So so he is just great. And the central relationship between Sissy Spacex Jewel and Redford's Forest is really beautifully done. So much of it is to do with them sitting across the table from each other, having conversations that are about nothing, but are also kind of about everything. And it's, it honestly, the whole thing is so, it's really seductive. I loved being in the company of these characters. I love the way in which... On the edges of all this, you have Casey Affleck, whose whose character you know is kind of desperate to crack this story, to crack this case, but also 
is kind of bizarrely being shunted around by his superiors and therefore starts to feel that there is a kind of weird uh, empathy between him and the people that he's theoretically trying to take down. Now, I know that thing about cops and criminals being two sides of the same coin is, a, you know, is nothing new. There's that famous thing in adaptation, which is see every movie ever made. But it's the way in which this is done. It's, it's got a real old cinema feel to it i mean it looks and feels like a movie that was made in a different age the pacing of it is completely anachronistic when you put it next door to you know what's happening in modern multiplex cinema i honestly simon i i loved it i just loved it i thought it was really and i thought as i said it may not be his final movie but if it is if it is what what a wonderful way of you know putting your your, maybe that's one of the reasons why he thinks it should be yeah, maybe, maybe, maybe. I mean, I think he said that as just as he was going into it, and you know, who knows whether it actually will be. But I, 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 I just thought it was. I loved it. I really loved it. I thought it was that kind of that old nostalgic. I mean, shamelessly nostalgic, shamelessly affectionate uh, portrayal of the outlaw lifestyle that does this brilliant job of mirroring what you know about Redford's screen career and the central character at the heart of all of this. Yeah, I just thought it was. An absolute charmer. Anna Nixon is in Leeds. I saw The Old Man and the Gun at Leeds International Film Festival. He was one of my favourite films of the season. Oh, good. It's just such an enjoyable film which demonstrates perfectly the way that Robert Redford's character won over everyone he stole from. <laughs> he certainly won me over. I love the use of Redford's previous film footage to flashbacks of his youth. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So much better than makeup or CGI, and afterwards you can play the game of guessing which film each one is from. It feels like old-fashioned storytelling all in the best ways, including its 90-minute running time. Um, and this from the splendidly named Michael Earp, as in E-A-R-P. As in Wyatt Earp. As in Wyatt, yeah. yes. It was light and delightful, really well shot, great antithesis to the Wham Bam Thank You Ma'am films. Initially, we were not wowed, but over the last two days, this is the past two days, we yeah. are recalling aspects of the film and we're smiling as we do so. We'll be yeah. really interesting to hear what Mark thinks. Well, so that's like, I think that sounds as though it's going to be movie of the week. However, we're not done yet. Okay, so also out, uh, Await Further Instruction, which is a seasonal horror movie and a welcome to Christmas. Christmas comes along, we always have Christmas horror movies again. This is something that we've been talking about in the Secrets of Cinema programme that goes out on BBC4. Is that the Secrets of Cinema? Secrets, Secrets of Cinema. Secrets, Secrets of Cinema. Secrets of Cinema. That's your, that's your show that that's you It's my do. thing now. That you do. It's my, it's my well, jam. No, no, this is your thing and this yeah, is your yeah. jam, but occasionally yeah. you spill <laughs> over. and my jam. You yeah. spill over. Occasionally I jam. moonlight on the side. That was, uh, it was being pretty well received. It's been very well received. And is it looking at uh, Christmas movies? It is, yeah. So it's called it? Secrets of Christmas Cinema. Secrets of Christmas Or Christmas Cinema. Secrets of Cinema. When can I catch that? You can show? catch that, I think, on the 21st. 21st of December. I think it's the 21st. It's the Thursday. It's a Thursday, it's whatever the day of the week, Thursday. That's, that's the 20th. 20th. Thank yes. you. Did somebody tell you that in your headphones? No, I knew. I you knew know, that? I know it instinctively. Okay, well, that's when it is, and it's just for Christmas. Anyway, so, uh, wait further instruction, which is by Johnny Kevorkian, who made disappeared. When this turned out to be a big hit at Fright Fest, when Fright Fest was on, Alan, who, of course, is, you know, the Lord of Fright Fest, introduced me to Johnny Kevorkian. He said, you have to see Johnny Kevorkian's film. It's gone down really, really well. It's one of the hits of the festival. So, um, there is a long-standing tradition of Christmas films about how hard it is to be with your family at Christmas. You know, we've currently got Surviving Christmas with the Relatives, which is the movie which is described as a Christmas movie from the writer of Fatal Attraction. Here we have a young man called Nick, uh, Sam Gittins, who brings his girlfriend Angie, played by uh, Nira Knight, home for Christmas. And he's 
they have he hasn't been in contact with his family for three years and it's very very obvious very quickly why we are introduced to this openly racist grandfather played by david bradley and an embittered old dad played by grant masters who was clearly somebody whose own father treated him really uh, appallingly called him squelcher and drummed into him uh, many of the problems that he has they said so they haven't been in contact for ages now they're back and immediately you want them to leave i have to say i didn't know you were coming oh it wasn't definite. I never pop at mum, Dad. You know, at work it is staff policy to put personal arrangements in writing about a month in advance. Right, well, it really was a last-minute thing. Besides, our mobiles are conked out, so... So your phone wasn't working all last year, then? Well, the last three years, in fact. They're here now. That's what counts. Oh, very well. Good. It's my fault, Mr Milgram. I was on emergency cover switch this week. I'm Angie, Nick's girlfriend. Very pleased to meet you, Angela. I'll get started on the tea. I'll let Mum know we're here. So Angie, played by Nigel Nike, and uh, Nick, played by Sam Gittens, and uh, their father and grandfather in the house, also along with his uh, sister, who is pregnant, and her partner. And they have a very, very difficult time of the first evening. They go to bed, they wake up in the morning, and the whole house has been sealed in this kind of black, stringy metal all the windows all the doors all the openings they the whole house is completely hermetically sealed with these strange little pipes that appear to be feeding maybe air it looks like the house has been quarantined the only contact with the outside world is a television screen comes on and says await further instructions no internet no radio no anything else the mother immediately thinks, oh, it's a reality TV show. The father says, no, no, it's a terrorist attack. We've been quarantined. The authorities are in, in control. We have to do exactly what the authorities tell us to do. The younger couple are going, this, is, this doesn't make any sense. This isn't right. When hypodermic syringes start dropping down through the chimney that they are all instructed to take as an antidote to an apparent viral attack, there is a lot of, well, really? Do, do we actually trust this? And... The next thing that happens is that the instructions on the television start to sort of unpick any sense of community that they may have. It's sort of to say, you know, one of your members is infected. They must be uh, they must be quarantined. Somebody else is, uh, you know, is not to be trusted. And before your very eyes, the families start to fall apart and start to tear each other apart. And what I really liked about this film is it's made with a fairly low budget and it's got, you know, one space, which is the inside of this house. They think of a way, much as, you know, Clerks did, Clerks as it was called in America, that, you know, they, 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 they shot it all in that store because that's the location that they had. So you've got the, this, this uh, disparate family, they're all together in the house, they're all locked in and there is one simple but very, very smart idea that if you cage these people together and give them needling instructions, what will happen to them? And the film has a kind of, because it's a horror movie, it has like a Cronenbergy Twilight Zone inflected feel which becomes more and more prevalent as the film goes on um the television becomes the sort of portal of something sinister in a very sort of videodrome like way and the more it goes on the weirder it becomes but because it's so grounded in a in an idea that you can fully understand which is all these people cooped up together you know the racist grandfather and the 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 beleaguered mother and the the embittered father 
because you believe in that, you actually allow the film to take off into these sort of flights of fantasy, which are, as I said, much more inflected by things like like Cronenberg. And it really sustains itself and it moves on to something which has a sort of properly, I mean, actually very ironically seasonal nativity feel to it. Um, crossed with something which is quasi-apocalyptic, all done and tinged with body horror, all done on a very, very low budget, very, very sort of, you know, tightly uh, compact, put together, simple idea, well played out. Um, it's called Await Further Instructions, and I suspect that as the years go by, it will be a ho- a seasonal horror favourite. A cult favourite. A cult favourite, yes. So a couple of minutes, you could squeeze something in. If so you very quickly, else. let's do Mug, which is a Polish... Uh, Mug, M-U-G? Yeah. It, it, the Polish title, and forgive my Polish pronunciations, everybody. The Polish title is Twarz, T-W-A-R-Z, which means face, Mug, as in face, okay? okay? And it's directed by, and um, forgive me for this, Malgozata Sumowska. And it won the Jury Grand Prize at the Berlin Film Festival. It's inspired by this statue of Christ in Western Poland, which apparently is the tallest in the world, which was completed in 2010. Jacek, who is our sort of uh, centre of attention, is working construction on the st- statue. He's a kind of likeable uh, guy. He's into heavy metal. He has a passionate relationship with his girlfriend. And one day, whilst working on building this massive, massive sculpture, they're trying to put the head on, and he steps back off a platform and he falls and he falls into the statue and he falls on his face. Astonishingly, he survives, but he also then becomes the recipient of a uh, of a sort of groundbreaking face transplant. And the rest of the drama is about how people react to him, how the church, which has been raising all this money to put the head on the statue, will now deal with someone who has had their has had to have a face transplant because they were building the statue. How much, you know, is his life worth in comparison with the statue? His sister loves him, but will other family members, uh, you know, feel the same way? One of them at least admits to being scared because he doesn't look like he used to. Meanwhile, his girlfriend decides that he's basically no longer the person that she was in love with before and moves on. Now, I am aware that there are some sort of culturally specific elements that I'm missing in the film, but I, I, I really liked it. It starts with this really strange slow motion sequence of people in their underwear doing an underwear stampede into a supermarket to grab bargains, which apparently is a thing which I've never heard of before. And at the beginning, I thought, I can't quite understand what that's about. But then as it went on, you think, oh, it's because the film is about body image and it's about what you look like on the outside and what you're like on the inside. And it has a kind of religious allegory and a political allegory going on underneath, and it's called Mug, and I thought it was a very intriguing film. This has been a Something Else production for BBC Radio 5 Live. The movie of the week is... The Old Man and the Gun. Well, well done, Mark. You know. I tell you, you you really should go and see The Old Man and the Gun because I think you'd love it. Okay, I'll do that. Good. Thanks very much. I was going to anyway, uh, off the back of what you told me. Okay. And you, you, Redford was lovely when he came on the programme, wasn't he? Yes, he was. That was quite a while back now. And we were, constructed the whole show around him, and then we were never quite sure about whether he was actually going to turn up or not. But there, and we had we were an audience. On, we were on stage waiting for him, and we kept being told he's always at least half an hour late. And we kept saying we, we we're not going to be on air forever yes. if he and doesn't. And we had a pay an audience that had paid like fifty quid a seat. You know, so that was <laughs> that was a lot of money that we took, and so we were a little bit nervous. And, and we took all that money, didn't we? We did, and we invested it in the iWitter app. Yes, that's right. So actually. It worked out brilliantly. It's got a lovely bird song feature. I don't know if you've checked it on the iWitter app. It's got a lovely thing where you can just choose, you select the bird song app and you just get bird song all the way through. Very good. Uh, Ian Hargreaves 
Uh, whilst listening to the podcast last Sunday, I was in the bedroom bracing myself for a trip into central Bath during the Christmas market. Not for the faint-hearted. Pepper the cat was resting on the bed next to me as usual. We adopted him two and a half years ago from Bath Cats and Dogs Home. It was at that point in the podcast, the beautiful song of a thrush issued forth from my fruit-based device. Yes, I'm ahead of you. Still not funny. On hearing the tuneful tweets, Pepper's ears twitched. He leapt to his paws and looked around the room to catch sight of the bird. Unable to see such bird, he looked at me and cried before climbing on my knee and rubbing his head around the phone. I have heard of owls and even suffered the affliction myself whilst watching Kindergarten Cop on a flight some years ago. (laughs) Is this the first recorded case of birdsong-induced cat crying or bzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzz
Oh, sorry, I thought you were giving me a stop talking look. Why would I do that? I don't know, because you've got a look that goes, like, stop talking, and you were just doing it to me then. No, I think this is another one. Okay, fine. Uh, Played rather brilliantly by Alan Rickman. (laughs) Uh, As we know, the film has fantastic action sequences and also infinitely quotable fruity dialogue, which, rather marvellously, to give uh, listeners just a flavour of the the joy that is Die Hard. Do you remember for ages and ages when Die Hard was coming out and we were doing Where Are My Detonators? Anyway, uh, Simon Poole has put together a slightly modified clip from Die Hard and see if you can guess where the modifications came from. Here we go. Mr. Mr. Guest. Are you still there? Yeah, I'm still here. Unless you want to open a front door for me. No, I'm afraid not. But you have me at a loss. You know my name, but who are you? Just another American who saw too many movies as a child. Another orphan of a bankrupt culture who thinks he's John Wayne, Rambo, Marshall Dillon. I was always kind of partial to Roy Rogers, actually. I really like those sequined shirts. Do you really think you have a chance against us, Mr. Cowboy? Yippee-ki-yay. <laughs> I wonder where that was going to come in. <laughs> now, in that one word were two pop songs. Yes. C- did you spot them? Well, that last bit is me and the farmer. Well done. So you got the farmer. Where did the melon come from? Uh, <clears throat> was it? Uh, was it? There's not that many many songs with the <clears throat> word melon in them. Twisting my melon. Man. Yes. Twisting my melon. Well done. Can you just play us the end of that clip again? Is it possible? Just play the play the end bit. <laughs> Okay, we're just talking amongst ourselves while obviously when they when they do it in the podcast they'll edit this so it happens absolutely so, seamlessly. Yeah, it seamless. sounds as though we're so nimble. It was just genius. This is, Simon Paul does nothing all week apart from prepare jokes for the podcast. Yeah, actually. and then walk into the studio and then criticise my time. Didn't criticise it. He corrected he it. He corrected. No, it. criticising would have been saying, "Oh, how dare you get that wrong?" He simply corrected it. Yeah, and well, it was the, it was a it was a pithily executed one word correction. You can just back off, basically. That's what your talkbacks for. Okay, so what did you think it was, Simon? You thought it was me and the farmer. I mean, that's the thing. I'm me astonished farm- well, that you... That's got... me and the fa- well, farmer. Yeah, yeah. Play, I used to play... I know, because you're a big, beautiful South fan, right? And Twisting My Melon. Here we go. Yippee-ki-yay. Melon farmer. <laughs> the thing is, they work really well together. They, the intonation right. of melon and it's farmer... really funny. ...goes remarkably well. Well done, Simon. <laughs> well done. Uh, take a Christmas well bonus. Robin, see Robin for a Christmas bonus. Yes. I'm not sure what that would be like. Have an extra bauble from the tree. Um... Uh, okay, so very good. So, uh, are we done? I think we're done. Uh, well, no, we got DVD. Of yes, week. It's, well, we're done. Apart from that, yeah. I mean, we could play Melon Farmer again because I could play. I, that's now going to be like pff, bottom. That's going to make me laugh for a good year. Here we go with our DVD of the week. <laughs> hey, Mark. Hey, Simon. How well do you know your Thomas Paine? Well enough. Are you familiar with his The Age of Reason being an investigation of true and fabulous theology? No. Well, from the sublime to the ridiculous is one of the most overused phrases in the English language. Okay. Do you know the full quote? No, I don't. Go Go ahead. Thrill me. The sublime and the ridiculous are often so nearly related that it is difficult to class them separately. 
One step above the sublime makes the ridiculous, and one step above the ridiculous makes, makes the, the sublime, sublime again. Moreover, in the year of our Lord 2018, a list of motion pictures should be published, which includes both the Meg and They Shall Not Grow Old. <laughs> and there you go. So not just a political activist, philosopher, political theorist and revolutionary, but a seer, a prophet, an oracle and a diviner, or even a diviner. Diviner. This week's DVD of the week list does indeed contain a Carcharocalese Megalodon bothering Jason Statham in the Meg and Peter Jackson's The Megalodon. So let's hear what everyone thinks should be DVD of the week. Mark Elms. They Shall Not Grow Old is not only the best film of this year, but arguably one of the most astonishing technical achievements in cinema history. Its harrowing, heartfelt, yet humorous account of those brave souls who made it home will live with me forever. Catherine Ashworth, I like Christopher Robin, although it's no classic. Just spending time with the inhabitants of the Hundred Acre Wood is always a good idea. Uh, but I'll be buying They Should Not Grow Old, as my life conspired to make me miss it in cinemas and on TV and on iPlayer. Ian Johnston, They Should Not Grow Old, shall also not be challenged by any other film for the best title of best film of this year, never mind DVD of the week. Chris Mull, I'm awaiting delivery of on both Christopher Robin, which I and my wife thought and my daughter all loved, and They Shall Not Grow Old, which has to be one of the most powerful and important pieces of filmmaking in history and well worthy of being made available to every secondary school in the country as it was. I hope they all duly screened it for their pupils. And Keith says, I enjoyed The Meg for what it was. Christopher Robin was OK, if a little disappointing, but you can't look any further than They Shall Not Grow Old. I saw it on TV rather than at the cinema. An amazing achievement in war documentaries. What is our DVD of the week? Well, it's no surprise that it is They Shall Not Grow Old. Um, I, I thought it was a really great piece of work because, as Peter Jackson said, you use all that technology to put the humanity back into the footage. And, I mean, it, it, I, I saw it on the big screen. I've seen it in 3D. I've seen it on the small screen in the normal version. I just think that the thing that really hits home is how much it brings those faces you know, to life on screen and how much it personalises those stories and makes them seem real and vivid and immediate. I, I just thought it was lovely. And you loved it too, right? Yes, I, uh, yes, absolutely. No, I did. And and it is. it sounds like the kind of DVD that everybody, like every school should have it and, yeah. and every house should have it. Can yeah. I make a tangential point? Go ahead. When you said you'd seen it in 3D. I don't yeah. think I've seen a 3D film all year. Wow. Well, in that case... I mean, I, I, mean, I need can to go, I just, I need Can to go I just stand and up and go... Thank you very much. I was right. I just think I don't think there's been one. I mean, there have I been right. films that are available in 3D, but I saw them in 2D versions. But I don't think there's yeah. been a single film. Well, it is definitely compulsory 3D. It is definitely, 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 definitely. These are not my teeth I have in. Um, it is definitely on uh, the decline. It's a good word. <laughs> there's nothing wrong with definitely. That's actually an Oasis album, isn't it? Definitely. <laughs> Definitely. That's the whole thing. Definitely Eddie, Eddie Red Baby. Anyway, that's very good. Anyway, so well done. Yes, we got to the end. We did. <laughs> no loss of life. And Mary Poppins returns. Mary Poppins! And Mary Poppins is going to be on this show. And you're going to see it on Monday. I am. So Ems Blunt is coming on. 21st. Have you, have you, it's going to be a Christmas show. Have you Mary already Poppins. interviewed her? Nope. So Ooh. I can await your input when you see it on Monday. You will you be nervous on Sunday night as you think? I'm nervous I'm be, now. Are you already? Yeah. When it started, I was nervous too. You think, hang on, this is my first. The first film I ever saw was Mary Poppins. Here I am, just a couple of years later, seeing the. You know, what if it's going to spoil everything? And there we have to leave it. <laughs> it's a cliffhanger. 
It is. It absolutely is. It's a Mary Poppins cliffhanger. Go blimey, Mary Poppins. There's the ice cream. Yeah. And who gets to see it but the sparrows of the chimney sweeps? BBC Radio 5 Live. 